Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is Black and White, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape centered around the absence of color and all colors combined. Very true. Uh, as a disclaimer, uh, right out the, the gate, we want to emphasize this show is, this episode is not about race. Uh, when we say black and white, we are talking colors. Um, so we don't want anybody to misconstrue or, or think that, you know, our, our theme is racial in any way. Yeah, we, we were going to, in fact, we we're planning on doing a colors episode eventually, but we figured, hey, we could probably do an entirely separate black and white episode. Yes. But before we hit that, I'd like to say um, we have a nice review on, on iTunes. Um, Grillmaster Flex said, great show, such a unique idea for a podcast. I absolutely love this show. What a great blend of pop culture and music. And that was on iTunes. So thank you very much, Grillmaster Flex. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, review. Thank you so much. So if you are a listener, if you've, if you've come back for more episodes, we appreciate that. Our audience is beginning to grow, and uh, we would just like to ask if you enjoy the show, that you do give us a review, um, ideally on, on Apple iTunes, just because that seems to be uh, the place to review. I, I don't even know if Spotify even allows you to review. Spotify does not. Of course, of course you can leave a review on, on our social media platforms. Correct. But um, but it, it helps with the search engines when people are looking really for us. The people are looking for a music commentary podcast of two old white guys talking about music <laughs> right. they grew up with. Maybe we'll pop up then. Well, what I tell everybody, you know, it's it's a show for Gen Xers by Gen Xers, yep. and while it's music commentary, I mean, I, I feel we pull popular culture and American culture. Oh from, yes, of course. You know, the seventies through the nineties and everything we do. Um, you know, I huge Paul Simon fan, right? Um, and I love the song Kodachrome. I mean, if we ever do just a summer, a blanket summer uh, episode, Kodachrome, I think, surely would make my list. But there's a line in that song that has always bothered me. Everything is worse in black and white? Yes. Everything looks worse in black and white. I, I just disagree. I really do. Um, yeah, you know, color is descriptive, but black and white is interpretive. And for me... I just love black and white. It, it creates a dreamscape that color never can. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, the contrast. Ansel Adams is a good example of this. I mean, he was able to use light and shadow and get that, that really nice contrast between the, the black blacks and, and the white whites and really have that just that crisp, you know, product. I mean, I, I can never get that. You know, anytime I try, I get all sorts of different grays. But I can really, really admire those photographers that have that eye and that skill uh, to be able to just capture the light in such a, you know, contrasting way. Concerning this show, uh, as we said, uh, each of us took a different color. So Dave uh, was responsible for coming up with a list of white songs, and I chose black songs. And um, it really, it, it's very different from our usual uh, take on, on each episode because we will have no matches. We might time. have an artist match. Might have an artist match. For that reason, I did come with two. I have two alternates. as well. I have two as well. Um, but, you know, looking through the discography of the artists that I chose, I don't think that we will, but, you know, I, there may be deep cuts that I'm unaware of. I, I don't know. So We'll see. It'll be interesting. All right. Well, uh, who wants to go first? I'm trying to think. Who went first last week? Um I, we should really keep track of this. We, really we say should. this every yeah. single week. 
I, I can't remember what we talked about last week. Last week was back to school, if I, yes. am I correct yes. in saying that? And I believe I started that one. So you're you're okay. You're good to go, my friend. Well, if all else failed, I was going to say, you know, play as a game of chess, you know, which color goes first. But, um, okay, so I am up. Uh, well, my first song this week is by Amy Winehouse. Uh, it's titled Back to Black. Um, you know, sadly, Winehouse died in 2011, uh, leaving fans wondering what if. Um, she, she was often compared to... 60s female icons like Dusty Springfield and Aretha Franklin, and she was known for deep, expressive, you know, contralto vocals and and her eclectic mix of musical genres, uh, including soul, rhythm, and blues and and jazz. Um, this song, Back to Black, is from the 2006 album of the same name, and the song is about Amy Winehouse's breakup uh, with her then boyfriend Blake Fielder Civil. Um, they got back together and, and married in 2007, but before they reconciled and reestablished their relationship, Winehouse explained that Back to Black was about when you have finished a relationship and you go back to what's comfortable for you. And she said her ex went back to his girlfriend and she went back to drinking and, and dark times. Um, you know, Winehouse admitted that the entire album really was about the difficult time, this difficult time in, in their relationship. Um, the album, Winehouse's second, it, it entered the Billboard Hot 100 album chart at number seven, and it, it made Winehouse the highest debuting British female artist in the history of the U.S. albums chart at, at that time. Um, but the song was written by, by Amy Winehouse and Mark Ronson, who also produced the album. Ronson asked uh, what she would like to record, and Winehouse played some of her favorite albums, and they were all 1960s girl groups which turned into a crash course in, in girl group productions for Ronson. Her favorite girl group um, was, was the Shanghai Laws, actually. Um, and it was their 1965 single, Remember Walking in the Sand, that most inspired Ronson and influenced his songwriting for Winehouse's album. Um, he told her that he had nothing to play for or write them, but if she let him work on something overnight, she could come back the next day. So, so she didn't write or co-write any of her songs? She co-wrote. co-wrote. She co-wrote, okay. yeah. Um, so, Lyrically or musically? or uh, Both, I believe. I, I think that uh, overwhelmingly she uh, was the lyricist, um, and, and she could play, but my understanding, and I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is that she she couldn't read music, but she could play. She was one of those artists that, you know, she could play by ear. But you know, give a lot of her, there are a lot of people like oh, that. Yeah, so, I, but, I can't read. I mean, I can basic from seventh grade right, band. I yeah. can read music, but I, I can't read music. Exactly. Yeah. So she, you know, she wasn't the. She couldn't compose the the music, if you will. But in, in fact, Danny, just as an aside, Danny Elfman, you know. Oh. Composer extraordinaire. Now he may now, but when he started writing scores for Tim Burton, could yeah. not read music. Oh yeah, it's very common. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, she came back the next day and, uh, you know, he, he had come up with this little piano riff, which became the verse chords to Back to Black. And behind it, he just put a kick drum and a tambourine and tons of reverb. And the song, you know, she loved it. Same old same 
song actually has been covered twice when, uh, since Winehouse's death. Um, once by Andre 3000 and Beyonce for um, Buzz Lerman's big screen adaptation of, ad- adaptation of, of The Great Gatsby. And, and again by Ann Wilson of Heart on her 2018 album Immortal. Ann Wilson has actually said that this song, she feels, honestly exposes the pain in, in an abandoned lover's heart. She said it talks about humiliation, bravery, inextinguishable hope, desolation, and feeling small better than any other song she has ever heard. So back to Black. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan, and I'm not an um, intense fan. I mean, I have her albums, and I've listened to them at length. I never took the deep dive where I really kind of went past and you know read biographies and so forth. I intend to at some point. Right. Uh, of course, she is a tragic figure, like you mentioned, part of that twenty-seven club, unfortunately. Oh, oh yes, um, who dealt with the demons of, of substance abuse, uh, but quite a talent, quite well, a talent. And I just I really dug the style. Yeah, and no, I I loved um, Back to Black. I've, it was it was one of those albums I, I bought it just on the strength of rehab and. Uh, really, you know, I found that I, I loved loved the entire uh, LP uh, from start to finish. All right. Well, uh, my turn for the first white song. Um, there are a lot of obvious ones. I'm guessing same same with you that you had to think, okay, I, I need to weigh what people expect versus songs that I really like between really obscure songs. So I think I right. probably have a pretty good balance. But like always, I'm going to start with some of the more obvious ones. Um, what was the first one you thought of? It, like I, I probably because we were talking about ACDC, I thought of Back in Black when when you mentioned and you would take the black side of things. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of White? What's the first song? First song, uh, one of two. It would either be uh, White Wedding, okay. Billy Idol, or um, um, Velvet Underground, uh, White Heat. White, 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 White Heat. Heat. Yeah, and those yeah, those yeah. will probably make an appearance. But uh, the first one I thought of was by Cream, White, White Room. Room. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that was that was the third because I, you know before we had decided to just each take a color, I, you know I had a list of five and five, and yeah, uh, white white room was on my five. So, um, yep, absolutely. And white room is we, we you know I, I talk about the, the the canon of classic rock. You know, it's kind of like the canon of American literature. Oh yes, which of course has changed in, in recent decades. But the the canon of classic rock. I mean, there really is that. You know, you could you could argue the hundred songs that defined, you know, classic rock. This is on everybody's list. Oh, in for, fact, it would, good it would be on probably most people's top 10 list. Yes. And maybe some people's top five. It's that important of a song. And it came out in 1968. It's funny, I have two or three songs on the list that came out in either 68 or 67. So I'm not sure why that was such a time for I'm songs with white in the title. Pretty sure I know what those <laughs> you probably titles. You can probably name those. <laughs> I, yeah, right, right now I can name them. But. but a few weeks ago we talked about Eric Clapton and the different, you know, the different bands that Clapton and Ginger Baker. And, of course, we talked about Traffic and we talked about uh, the Yardbird. I mean, there are so many different versions of these British bands throughout the late 60s. And this was a power trio um, that, again, like like a lot of bands that maybe didn't have a ton of albums. And I think Cream only had two? or I don't know exactly how many. They didn't have a ton. They weren't around a lot no, for I, a long time. But they inspired all sorts of power trios after they came oh, out. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, and, and this one here, White Room, is, is one that's, I'd argue, one of uh, Clapton's most iconic uh, guitar performances. Uh, he got the, the, the actually Hendrix gave him the idea to use the wah pedal mm-hmm. on this song, and it's yep. one of the most popular uh, uh, wah pedal guitar songs out there. Mm-hmm. 
black curtains near the station. Black roof country, no gold pavements, tired starlings. Silver horses, run down moonbeams in your dark Clapton didn't write the song. He didn't sing the song. Now, Clapton, later on, in fact, he didn't play it live for a long time, but eventually started to play it in the right. 90s and, yeah. and, and was on uh, the, the uh, 24 Nights, 24 nights yeah. of course, a great performance of that. But, uh, but, but Pete Brown was kind of the band's uh, resident lyricist. He was a, a, a professional poet at the time, made his very meager living writing poetry, and the band kind of asked him to, to kind of to pen some songs for them. And so this is based on a poem that he wrote, and he kind of you know translated it to this song. And what's funny, um, you know, you think poet, and of course everyone assumed it's just really symbolic. It's not at all. Really, it's literally about him sitting in his apartment, which was white, had white walls, and black, and curtains, black curtains, which was near the train station, and he could look out the window and see people boarding the train. Well, that's boring. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's kind of disappointing, really. Now, I suppose you could say there's also, you know, sorts of subconscious. Um, oh yeah. yeah, text to it because it, it it was the point in time where he decided to quit drugs and alcohol. Okay. okay? Yeah. And so, you know, I've not been addicted to substances, uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> but but from what I hear from people who have, I mean, literally been just like physically addicted. Yes. Um, one of the after you get past the physical addiction part, it's it's trying to adjust to normal life, not having constant highs, because as we know, normal life has ups and downs, and a lot of it's just in the middle, in between. You know, you do what you need to do to get by, and so I suppose that's part of it. Um, sitting in your apartment, just trying to stay clean. And just realizing that sometimes life is, like you said, just kind of kind of bland. So, I mean, that, that, that feeds into it. But, yeah, it was simply about it, physically about his apartment. And um, hmm. it, it's kind of the, the, that was the place where he decided to become clean. And he, so he wrote the song of it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when you add, um, you know, just the, you know, the, the detox and, and, you know, coming clean, that does lend itself to not, not a symbolic meaning, but right. but it really does add emphasis it's, 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 to the to the. Song. I'm sure there's some metaphor, but it's more literal than anything right. else. And that's yeah. what that's what he was talking yeah. about. Uh, this song also is in, you know inspired lots of different cover versions. I, I, I'm not going to list all the different cover versions, but I'm going to list the extremes. Um, everyone from Joel Gray to Halloween have covered this song. So you can imagine everybody else in between. And it was most recently featured in 2019's The Joker at the very end when all chaos erupts. Yes, it was. So it's still part of our public uh, consciousness, our yeah. pop culture consciousness of today. So yeah, that's uh, that's White Rum by Cream. Okay. Now, it definitely would have made my list. It makes a great choice. And, and you know, Clapton, as I said, Clapton is a god. So uh, without question... Um, and thank you for the, the lesson because I, I always assumed there was something, you know. I, I just love I love that deeply one, profound cause I, about because I'm constantly song. reading too much into things. So oh, I, I love it when I'm schooled and someone just yeah. says, "You know what? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar." Yes, sir. Um, 
All right. My, my second song uh, is by Ram Jam, and it is the song Black Betty. Um, you know, it, it's a traditional song that folk singer Leadbelly popularized before his death in 1949. Uh, Leadbelly recorded a lot of songs, really, that, that otherwise might have been lost, including uh, Goodnight Irene and Midnight Special. Um, Leadbelly's version, uh, though, is, is a cappella, and it, it, it actually is commonly sung by, by laborers to pass the time while working. Um, but while Leadbelly has been typically credited as the original songwriter, he really can't take full credit for something that he recorded as a folk artist, um, because folk songs, you know, generally, folk songs need to be birthed uh, originally by a group of people rather than an individual artist. Um, at least in this context, I'm not talking '60s folk. No, but folk a lot songs. of a lot of the '60s folk yeah. songs were oh, were taken yeah. from traditional folk yeah. songs. Yeah. Um, but no, the, the source of the song is it's regularly contested, uh, as well as as well as the original meaning of what a Black Betty could have been, whether it be an object or a person. Some sources claim that Black Betty could have been used um, as early as the beginning of the 19th century to describe a musket or, or a, liquor, a liquor bottle. And, you know, it's very plausible that those could be the meanings that would be applied to the Black Betty in the song. But the first documented case of the song Black Betty was actually performed in 1933 by a convict on the Darrington prison farm in Texas. Uh, historians now believe the term Black Betty actually refers to the whip that was used in southern prisons to drive African-American prisoners. Um, so, you know, Leadbelly, he, he himself was a member of a Texas prison chain gang. So it's it's very plausible that he learned the song and many others there. And, and there may also be a, a trail that could be investigated further into the spirituals of slaves who worked the fields in southern plantations. But uh, it's it's an interesting history, at the very least, and you know, how one song uh, evolved from a, a possible origin in slave songs to, to white musicians like, like Ram Jam. Um, the band, though, it, you know, it did give credit uh, to Lead Belly, uh, who had the definitive recording. Um, but it should be worth noting the influence of black folk music that was felt as late as the 1970s and that we are likely still feeling today. But, but Ram Jam themselves, they were a, a short-lived band from New York City, and uh, this was their only hit. Um, while the lyrical content is pretty standard folk blues material uh, about a black woman from Alabama who has a wild child, Ram Jam took uh, some heat because some civil rights groups felt that the lyrics were disrespectful to black women. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, they you know, tried to, to share the history of the song and, you know, people hear what they want to hear. So, um, while the lyrics, regardless, may, may be deconstructed, um, Ram Jam's version is just driven by its powerful beat and very aggressive tempo. And it has, it has such interesting rhythmic modulations and shifts. It really, it makes it one of those songs that gets your heart beating faster. Um, the song is commonly played at sporting events to pump up the crowd. I, I just, I've always loved the percussive groove and, and the catchy melody of this song.
Well, you already mentioned when I asked you, you know, what songs you thought of when I mentioned White, uh, by the way. I was going to wait to get to another song before I talked about this, but, you know, the, the whole Family Guy thing with the white. Yes. I was going to pronounce white this way the white. entire time. <laughs> I have Brian, have a clip of Brian, or no, I guess it was Stewie that, admon- yeah. no, it's it Brian that admonishes Stewie yes. for saying whipped. Anyway, um, second, the second white song uh, is indeed uh, White Light, White Heat by mm-hmm. Velvet Underground. I figured it'd be there, yeah. And Velvet Underground is, is one of my favorites um, for a lot of reasons. Um, if nothing else, if, 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 you're not a, if you're not a Velvet Underground fan, you have an opportunity. Have you been to Pittsburgh oh, yes, to the, the Warhol, Warhol Museum? Museum? Yeah, yeah. On one of the floors, it's a great, just it's, it's like a room you walk into and there are um, screens, either a circle or it's a square around you. They're just constantly bombarding you with images of the band and the music. Yeah. And they have these these chairs, these couches that you can just sit. And I probably stayed for a lot of hours. I was by myself, so I didn't have to worry about holding anybody else up. And uh, I just sat there for maybe more than an hour and just kind of just let everything soak in. Oh, but it's easy. Folks, if you have not been to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, I mean, it is unlike anything. We, we couldn't describe it for you. Not, yeah, no, not it's accurately. great. It, it's great. Uh, anyway, so that's just that I was always a fan, but I really became a fan when I when I went to the museum. Um you know, Velvet Underground, which John Cale and, and Lou Reed started, uh, you know, in New York City um, in the mid '60s, r- really became popular and kind of were allowed, even though they didn't sell, they weren't very commercial. Uh, were able to continue to create this innovative music because Andy Warhol, uh, at one point, um, got involved and decided to to kind of manage them. Right. Um, he was kind of a symbolic producer. But really, he just gave them, you know, a way to, to fund their music and probably a place to live. And that, that part of that whole scene, if you're familiar with that, if not, you can look that up because that was an interesting time in New York. Very. But they just were, um, I, don't, they have, I don't know if they've been labeled like the, the godfather of or the predecessor to, but they clearly were uh, one of the predecessors to alternative music and punk music and new wave. Yep, all three. Because when you listen to Velvet Underground, yeah, it, it, they sound like a 60s band in one respect. But, and this, I hate this phrase, but I had to apply it here, they were way ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. They really were. I mean, they were playing with distortion. Uh, in fact, I think Jan, John Cale liked to describe their sound as anti-beauty. Um, they were not concerned about clean production. They were not concerned about, you know, a, a type of, like, almost the exact opposite of progressive rock, which was beginning to develop at this time. You know, progressive rock was all about arranging different layers and of, of, of instruments and, and just making everything play nice and clean. Uh, Velvet Underground are not about that at all. Uh, <laughs> just fuzzy guitars and distortion and all sorts of different effects on their music. Um, the White Light, White Heat, although I can't endorse the subject of the song. No. Um, <laughs> it, it's a masterpiece of, of, of what it is. It, it, but the song is about um, the, the feeling... Supposedly, I have not experienced this, uh, but of, of injecting illicit substances into your into your veins. Oh, I lied, I said now, goodness knows 
great song but you know i'm not i'm not promoting injecting yourself with anything unless no. you're a diabetic and you need to inject yourself to survive <laughs> insulin is a yeah it's a bit different <laughs> so but I, so part of me doing this podcast it's very frustrating sitting here trying to describe music because i can't do any type of music justice i don't think anybody can verbally do music justice no. you'd have to listen to it so for me to try to describe the under the velvet underground or this song there's no point to it. So listen to it if you haven't heard it, or if you have, listen to it again. Um, go to our Spotify playlists because you know I'm not doing any service at all. Yeah, no, I you know I I try at times to describe uh, the sound, and I I don't know if I do it justice. So uh, you're right. I mean it's it, that's why we that's why we have the accompanying playlists. I mean it it really. You know, we can describe it to our heart's content, but it, we really need the audience to hear these songs and, and, you know, judge for themselves and really to gauge, you know, the merit of our choices after they've heard and experienced the music. So so there, um, there are two obvious ones from the classic rock canon. And, and you could say, I mean, Velvet Underground is just classic rock, half classic rock, half one foot in classic rock and one foot in alternative yeah. new wave punk. Because oh, they absolutely. were kind of... The, the, one of the first there were others MC5 and you know you can make a case for the kinks I mean the kinks and the who you can make a case for being the predecessors to punk rock as well oh so there yeah. are a lot of bands obviously but Velvet Underground was the first to really take that step where you just didn't sound like anything else right yeah. no you're right well if you want classic rock my, my third uh, choice here my third song you know it's right there in that canon it is Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by the Hollies um, I like the Hollies. Yeah, Long Cool Woman. Uh, it was written by Alan Clark, Roger Cook, and, and Roger Greenaway, and it's featured on the 1971 album Distant Light. Um, you know, it's the only Hollies single without their characteristic three-part harmony vocals. Um, instead, the song features lead guitar and lead vocal work by Alan Clark. Uh, the reason why, though, uh, Clark uh, Clark is the only singer on the record. Um, but he, he, the reason is he, he didn't intend for the song to be released on a Holly's album. He, he really intended to record his own al- album to, you know, attempt a, a solo, uh, a solo album. And when the band learned that he intended to do a solo recording, Clark was actually issued an ultimatum. Um, he could either remain with the Hollies or he could pursue a solo career, but he could not do both. So Clark, he included the song on the band's album. But then, uh, very angered by their ultimatum, he he left the group. And, um, you know, the song wasn't released until a year after Clark had left. Um, And it was written in in that swamp rock style of Creedence Clearwater Revival in in terms of the vocal rhythm and and melodic style. It it came out in the spring of 72, which actually was the same year Creedence split up. Um, Clark... uh, he kind of imitated John Fogarty's vocal style, which was based on the Creedence song Green River. Um, 
But but Clark Cook and Greenaway, they, they, how the song came to be, they returned to their office after a night of heavy drinking, and they decided it would be fun to write a song about the illegal sale of alcohol during American Prohibition. Um, you know, and the song, it does. It tells about the FBI raiding a speakeasy and about a, a, you know, a woman, a beauty, who's singing at the bar, and the narrator doesn't want her to get into trouble, so he saves her. And according to Clark, you know, the trio wrote the song, even drunk, uh, as drunk as they were in just five minutes. Um, in the Hollies' native UK, though, the song was only a modest success for the band. It, it peaked at number 32 on the charts. But it was a smash hit in the U.S. It, it peaked at number two. And it was actually the highest charting single um, for the Hollies on, on the Billboard Hot 100. Clark rejoined the Hollies in the summer of 73, partly due to the success of the song. But you know, this this tale of, of a government agent and his femme fatale, I mean, it, it's just one of those classic songs. It also, though, is one of those classic, it, it contains one of those, you know, classic indecipherable lyrics in rock history. Um, the, you know, she was a long, cool woman in a black dress. Most people really can't, um, you know, they can't make out or understand what comes immediately after. Um, the second part of that that line is just a 5'9", meaning 5 foot 9 inch, just a 5'9", beautiful tall, is actually hmm. the second part of the line. Um, and I, I actually had never really known what, what they were singing until I you know, looked well, it up for the, the episodes. So. Not being a lyrics person, I didn't know that I didn't understand because I never even listened to it to begin with. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, that is long, cool. Woman good song. Yeah, dress. it's a cool song. That's good. Good choice. All right. So I got two kind of classic rock staples out of the way. Now we're going to go a little bit uh, more obscure. Okay. This is actually a band that you kind of introduced me to. At least you mentioned them, and I didn't get into them right away. I mean, I I, I, I kind of liked the vibe, but you know, it just wasn't the time. And, and then I was watching the uh, live from Hyde Park um, DVD with Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And uh, watching it for the first time with my wife, and during No Surrender, uh, he brings this guy up on stage to sing. And I remember looking to my wife saying, "Wow, this guy, this guy's really good." Because our assumption was it was just some random guy in the crowd. 
Well, it turns out it was Brian Fallon mm. from Gaslight Anthem, yep. the, ga- the Gaslight. We I, always I, joke about the the Gaslight Anthem. I'll yeah. call him Gaslight. I figured that's where you were going. So, and you know, they open they open for the, the boss uh, on that at least in that that Hyde Park show, and then he brought Brian up to sing. And so everybody, of course, knew it was Brian Fallon. I just didn't know at the time that it was actually. So I was right. The guy can sing, and there's a reason why he's lead singer of the Gaslight Anthem. So who's the Gaslight? If you have not heard of the Gaslight Anthem, they are a kind of, you know, there's so many different subgenres, and the most interesting one was like a, like a Midwestern punk. I don't know why that's a thing, but yeah, Midwestern punk. Um, but it's, it's really just kind of alternative. Uh, Bruce Springsteen. It, it is. It is. One hundred They are. They are from New Jersey. Uh, they did grow up Springsteen fans, although they didn't set out to sound like Springsteen. But it just it, it it sounds like Springsteen as if like let's say you know during the recording of Darkness on the Edge of Town um, when punk music was becoming prevalent. Right. And Springsteen was a fan. He was a big fan of the Ramones and the Clash and, and a lot of the other bands. And you know, darkness is kind of his response to that because Born to Run was kind of the Phil Spector type production, mm-hmm. you know, layers and layers and layers of sound. And darkness, of course, was almost a completely different record. But by the time he got around to putting that record out, it was very sparse, uh, very stripped down. And he really thought he was really tempted to make a punk album at the time. And he realized after Born to Run that he just probably couldn't pull that off. I mean, he was too much of people what it, what people expected of the boss oh, yeah. even though he's changed throughout his career quite a bit it was too much of a leap so darkness was kind of his response to punk rock but if you can imagine that springsteen came along later in in, in maybe several decades later um, this is probably what it would have sounded like if he decided to pursue that that punk alternative sound oh yeah you nailed it um ryan fallon's voice is, is very springsteen like um the songs are very much um landscapes and stories and nostalgia about cars and girls um, and, and even different places around New Jersey. So it's very much, it's not a copycat. It's very much an unintentional homage, I think is what yeah, it is. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's very original, but, but it, it's, it is. I mean, it, it is in so many ways a tribute to Springsteen. You know, I, yeah, I remember when I, entered, I, I, you know, told you about the band. I actually came upon them. This is one of the benefits uh, of teaching, I suppose. It was a former student, um, because I, I had uh, in class played Springsteen and, and Harry Chapin. I she like loved the music that I played in class, and you know she was the one who then um, after graduation, um, a couple years after she graduated, she she came back and she asked me if I had ever heard of the Gaslight Anthem, and I I hadn't no idea who who they were. So yeah, she was the one who told me that I definitely need to give them a listen, and um, so. Uh, I've been I've been a fan ever since. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, so. they they ended up only having f- uh, four records, and um, uh, and and they're solid records. Although the '59 sound is is my favorite of the four. Yeah. Um, after that, you know, Brian Brian the band kind of took a break, and Brian had a side uh, project with the Horrible Crows, and then he released a solo album. He's released several solo albums since, and um, I just read recently. It's kind of sad. He just does not see a future for. Uh, Gaslight ever getting back together again. Oh, that is sad. Um, he felt, he kind of compared it to Green Day. He said, you know, if we were sitting on an American Idiot, if we had like that type of material, um, that, like he considers that to be like the comeback album. Like if you're sitting on American Idiot, then yeah, you, you come back together and you record that. But he just doesn't feel like he has the, that type of material to 
pull everyone back. And so he's going to continue to make solo albums, which are very good. I'm, I'm as much a Brian Fallon fan as I am of the Gaslighting. In fact, my wife likes his solo stuff much better now, than Gaslighting. I, I don't, I do not know much. Well, uh, about I'll his recommend solo work, some of so. the stuff, especially his first two are, are really, really solid. Okay. Um, but coming back to the song here uh, on 59, the 59 sound, which is the album I'd recommend. Uh, people starting with, if you're looking to, to give Gaslight Anthem a, a, a listen, there's a song called uh, Old White Lincoln Yes, on there. And uh, boy, it really fits the, the cliche that I just mentioned of the Bruce homage band, because it's, it's about a car. That's about a girl car, a girl driving a car, <laughs> which happens to be a 55 uh, Lincoln Capri uh, convertible. And really, that's all the song is about, other than the fact that he just kind of is smitten with this, this girl in this car and hanging out, you know, hanging out, uh, whether, I don't know, high school, you know, shortly after. Yep. Um, and that's, that's it's just a, such a simplistic song, but it's such a fun song, too. That's Old White Lincoln off uh, 59 Sound. That's 2008, by the way. 2008 from the Gaslight Anthem. All right. Well, my next song, uh, it's by Steely Dan, and it Yay. is Black Friday. Um, Black Friday, not Black Cow. No. no we, I couldn't do Black Cow. Uh, <laughs> I know. We, we don't repeat songs. But did, I, we, did we pick Black I can't remember if that actually made, that made the, the Animals. Playlist, if that was an yeah. alternate. Okay, no, cool. Black Cow made the playlist. Very I, um, cool. Or, or the, the mixtape. We. <laughs> We kind of use the terms interchangeably, well, but sure. you know, it is Gen X mixtape. Um, now, honestly, I probably would choose Black Friday over Black Cow. Anyway, I just I one of my my favorites um, by by the duo. Um, yeah, Steely Dan. I, you're you're the bigger fan, but I you know I I love them. I I'm such a fan of jazz and their fusion. You know, it, it's it's so stellar. It's it's you know it's just oh it's near perfection. But that's also... No, no, no. no. It, let me correct you. It, it is perfection. It is, yeah, I knew that was where you were going. <laughs> it is perfection. <laughs> but that's also one of the reasons that I'm not quite as big a fan as you because it's so clean and it is so flawless and it's so... You know, jazz is all about, you know, improvisation on the... You know, it's just... It's just a jam, and it's it, you know it's experimental. Well, it's it's funny because I know you mentioned uh, on the last couple of broadcasts that you're a jazz fan, and I'm not. I'm not a. I don't hate jazz. I don't listen to it, and I realize what it is. Um, I like live jazz. 
Oh, yes. yes. Um, there's a club up in Akron. Um, well, we were just watching that thing you do the other day. We were exposing our daughter to some some good movies that she's missed. Well, you and I should go to Blue sometime in Akron. Yes, that's, yeah, that's what I was mentioning, yeah, right? I've, I've been there a few times. And we were just watching the end when, when um, the character goes to the jazz club. And, and I'm just that's when I realized that I just I really prefer live jazz music over recorded. I mean, I still pop in Miles and Coltrane every so often, and, and right. I have a lot of jazz albums. But And, and I have friends, too, that are true... Uh, jazz music fans. I yes. have a couple. I have a couple friends that can just they can name all the different. That's why they like Steely Dan as well. That's right. funny. Steely Dan is one of those bands that um, I have different circles of friends that don't have anything in common except for like the Venn diagram of Steely Dan. You know, <laughs> my classic rock fans and I have pop music fan. I mean, yacht rock fans, and then I have these like jazz snobs, and yeah. I say that with affection. That that do they don't like classic rock. They don't like popular music, but they make an exception with Steely Dan, partly because all the different jazz legends that played on their records. Oh, um, yeah. No, I, I really, yeah, I've been to Blue a few times. I, you're right. Jazz is meant to be played live. Um, but it's also, you know, big band aside or, or songs from the Great American Songbook, I, may, I might pull those for this, for our podcast, but it's very unlikely I would ever pick just jazz because I really, I, I feel that jazz, if, if you're going to, you know, take jazz uh, for what it is, you know, as a recording, you know, from a studio session, it really is meant to be heard in its entirety from start to finish, the album as a whole. I mean, singular songs, I mean, they're, they're all fine and well, but but jazz is really, you know, it, it's just something you surrender yourself to. And, well, and every performance is different, that's the it thing. It is, yeah. In fact, I, it's, not un, it's not unusual if you... Um, yeah, you can, especially the the greats. I mean, if you go back to Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, I mean, Thelonious Monk. I mean, a lot of these artists would have, you know, on their albums, uh, you know, when they released the album, they would have sometimes three, four, five different versions of the same song. I think I have seven versions of my favorite things by John Coltrane somewhere oh, yeah. <laughs> in my library. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so, yeah, I, I went with Black Friday by Steely Dan. Um you know, it, the song was released long before the term came to denote the shopping frenzy on the day after Thanksgiving. Um, they, they released the song uh, really in tribute to or, or in, in mention of the original Black Friday um, when in 1869, uh, a failed ploy let many wealthy investors broke. Uh, the, the investors, uh, they tried to corner the market on gold and, and buying as much of it as they could um, to drive up the price, um, you know, the government found out and it released $4 million worth of gold into the market, driving down the price and then really clobbering the investors. Um, so, you know, the song, it, it's about that time, uh, that event in, in U.S. history, but it, it mentions a town in Australia, um, fly down to Muswellbrook. Um, Muswellbrook is actually, a, it's a rural town, two hours north of Sydney, and it's full of kangaroos, and thus the line, nothing to do but feed all the kangaroos in, in the song. Um, it's possible that Walter Becker and, and Donald Fagan, they selected the name of uh, Musselbrook from an atlas, mainly because it worked well with their next line, I'm going to strike out all the big red words from my little black book. And th they also wanted to place far away from L.A., you know. Um, but yeah, still they used various guitarists on the Kitty Light album, um, including Rick Derringer, Hugh McCracken, Larry Carlton. And on this track, um, however, 
Walter Becker played the solo. He he did it using the Fender Telecaster belonging to another guitarist to play it on the album, Danny Diaz, and um, Becker used it because he, he liked how Diaz had set it up. This was the first of two singles uh, released from the Kitty Light album. Uh, Bad Sneakers was the second. And like many Steely Dan singles, Black Friday, it was just a modest, uh, you know, modest hit, really. It peaked at number 37 on Billboard. Um, but that was never a concern to Fagin or Becker. They, they weren't concerned ever about how their right, singles no, no. fared. Yeah, they could care and, less. Yeah, exactly. Like and, and like every Steely Dan album released before they disbanded in 1981, Kitty Lied, uh, it, it did. It reached gold status. So. Well, that, that's that's my favorite album. It's not necessarily their, their best, necessarily. I right. mean, I think that has to go to Asia just because of what Asia is. But um, but Kitty Lied is my favorite. Yeah, it's probably mine too. Any um, Major Dude is on there. And, oh, good, 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 yeah. good stuff. I'm but, glad. Look at that. You picked it. I'm impressed. No, I just had to use the line. And, and much deserved. I need to quit, <laughs> no, no, no. Need to quit throwing that good. at you. No, but, that's but good. You shouldn't be. You know I like... I know, I know. No, <laughs> I, I, I was just saying that to be funny. I, no, I appreciate that, though, because anytime we can get Celia Dan on the list, I'm a happy man. Yes, sir. All right, your turn. <clears throat> All right, so this is one that I wrestled with that went back and forth on and off my list for about three weeks until like, even in the shower this morning, I changed my mind again. Hmm. Okay. There are a couple songs out there that I I, I kind of like, but they're not in my they're not in my normal wheelhouse of, of, of listening. Like I don't I don't own these songs. They're not part of my library anywhere. Okay, they're, they're older songs that would have come out at the time I would have purchased CDs. Okay, <clears throat> did not buy these, so I almost feel like I shouldn't include songs that aren't part of my consciousness. I'm sure you should. Eh, that's just my own criteria. Okay. Like I, I just okay. I mean right. I think any I can go anywhere and go on the, online and just pick songs that are that have the white in the title, but I want to pick songs well, that Well, I, I wasn't suggesting that. Yeah, but, but <laughs> necessarily. But I guess if it was if it's important enough to me, I would have somehow made an effort to 
added to my library. I don't know. Anyway, there are two songs on here that were on that cusp. But I like the songs. I think they're very quality songs. They're not guilty pleasure songs. They're, they're but they're pop songs. Okay. That just it, they just don't fall in my wheelhouse. If that makes sense. No. Okay. Yeah, get it. And there were two that are on my list. One in particular that's really obscure. Like it's a deep track from a band that no one's ever heard of, but about seven of of us <laughs> that's not true um, and I'll talk about them if I get to my alternates list but uh, I went back and forth between the two and I am going with the more popular song because I think this is a song that most people would assume we would place on a black and white episode okay and that is Dido's White Flag White Flag that would have made my list so I, I actually loved that. her voice sorry about that just, whole introduction yeah. just for that <laughs> no, I, I actually own Dido's album and you know I just don't want anyone to think I'm a fraud because um, anyone that knows me I, I don't listen to Dido well she had the two big singles uh, right and then she she actually she recorded with Eminem as right. well lately right. but um no I, and what I mean is like I was aware of the song at the time and right. I and I liked the song at the time so it's not like I just you know no it's fantastic but it came out in 2003 and I I think I probably knew it just because it, it appeared on like every single TV show at the time like it was everywhere the song was everywhere and even though it's it, it, it's a pop song I would argue that there are some indie elements to it. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's a lot of production going on there, um, you know, with the the synthesized beat and so forth. But, you know, stripped down, I think you could almost make a case for it being even more of an indie song, even though it became like a huge pop hit. And really, it's just a song about someone failing to give up on a relationship. So I, I like sometimes those really simple messages. Although... Around the time, it was kind of co-opted by a white supremacist. Really? Now that I didn't know. Who felt it was kind of a hidden message, a wink-wink about a white flag and not giving up on, you know, Caucasians being the supreme race type of thing. Really? And I suppose if you listen to the lyrics, a twisted mind could could make that out. Yeah. And so they kind of, this person co-opted and put it on the website of this white supremacy group and uh, Dido became aware of it, and she obviously um, condemned that action, and she actually sued so that uh, he had to take the song off of the website. Cease and desist. Yeah. So she took that extra step of not only denouncing it, but, but taking legal action. I, I honestly have no memory of that, but um, no, I, playing the lyrics through my mind, I mean, it, it, I can see how it could be usurped for that purpose, but um, no, I, I always loved, well, I've always leaned more pop than, than you have. I've, I've always loved Dido. I know you think that I shouldn't still love you. I'll tell you that. But if I didn't say it, well, I'd still have felt it. Where's the sense in that? I promise I'm not trying to That was not where I thought you were going. I, I I didn't know where you were going, but in my mind, I'm thinking White Horse by Taylor Swift. Well, that's the other one. <laughs> so That's the other one. That, then that one's still on my alternates list. Okay, yeah. But that, that was the other one. And, and I tell you what, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan. 
I respect Taylor Swift as an artist. I saw her live. I took my daughter to see the Red Tour, and I will say it was a phenomenal concert. Mm -hmm. I was greatly entertained every moment of that show. Um, I love the Red Album. That's, and I won't even call that a, a guilty pleasure. It's a pop album that I, I just I love. I'm unashamed to say that I love the Red Album. Yeah. Now, some of her other albums have its moments, and I think, again, I, the reason I like White Horse is because it is so stripped down. Yes. Uh, the focus is just on her vocal. And just on the song itself, with a little bit of guitar, there might be some piano in there. Yeah. Um, but that's another one where I'm like, man, Dave's putting a Taylor Swift song. What? You know. So, <laughs> but but again, everyone's going to expect. Why isn't White Horse on the list? Yeah, so, yeah. so those two, I played around with, and I decided to go with one of them. So Taylor, should we have an artist match? Um, could possibly end up on the on the playlist. Okay. Now I am. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan, but you know, DJing everyone. Everyone requests Taylor Swift, and she's grown on me. I mean, I, the Red Album, as you said, I mean, it is it is an album that I, I don't own, but it is an album that I can listen to and, and enjoy and appreciate. I mean, you know, people people scoff about Taylor Swift, but I don't know. I mean, she really, she writes her own music. She plays her own instruments. I mean, she's, you know, and and she, you know, she varies her sound. She's experimental, and, and I don't know that really. That's how much more rock and roll can can well, there be? You know, it's it's really, and I, I don't mean to suggest she's rock. No, 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 saying, no, no. But she know, just dropped a new album. Um, yeah, just, recently. Yeah, and my um, my daughter came down. She's twenty one. I've mentioned, and she was was a fan. Obviously, I took her to see the show. And she told me that, you know, I haven't listened to it yet, but she said she really, really enjoyed it. And it's more of an indie type of feel. It's called Folklore, I believe the name of the album. So it's folky, indie kind of stuff. And so I said something which I kind of regret because I'm not sure that it's authentic because I'll give give praise to to someone like Springsteen who constantly evolves and changes their sound and and doesn't sound because there are some bands, you know, they might have 10 albums and they just they're in the same place. They've They've never changed who they are. And then some bands, you know, gradually evolve. But then I think there are bands out there that simply change their sound to keep up with what is marketable. And so I would never obviously accuse Springsteen of that because I, he's a true artist that's exploring different me. All right. So this is because I know Lana Del Rey is big now. I have her oh, most recent album. I, I love Lana I actually Del Rey. have all of her stuff. Um, she, she's right up there with Amy Winehouse for me. And and so kind of the, the indie female vocalist thing is kind of working its way back into to being the thing. Right. And so the cynic in me said, OK, right. So Taylor Swift started country and then she went pop. And now she's kind of do the indie thing because that's what's popular. So that's probably unfair. I would say White Horse is, a, is very deservedly uh, would would make the list. So. But it hasn't made the list. No, it hasn't. This is I'm the saying, most we've talked about yes. an artist that did not make the yes, list. Yes, uh, that, that is a new one. Um, <laughs> so it's possible, although I, like, like you say, I doubt we'll have a, an artist match. But uh, it, because we've talked about her and mentioned her, that will appear on the playlist for alternates and mentioned songs. Absolutely. Well, I would assume that our alternates would. Right, anyway. right. Yep. All right. Well, now we're going grunge. So, oh, um, good. Uh, I am going to... Steely Danny Grunge. I like the way you're yeah. headed. Oh, thank you. Um, I, you know, I did it for you. Uh, thank Dave. you. It was all for you. Thank you. Uh, so, now my next song, it is by Soundgarden, and it is Black Hole Sun, um, which was one of the first songs that I, I just knew I had to include. Um, the band, you know, Soundgarden is named after a sculpture in Seattle called Soundgarden. And longtime speculation was that, you know, Black Hole Sun got its name from another Seattle sculpture called 
Black Sun, uh, which is by artist Isamu Noguchi. Um, but the the piece, if you're ever in in the Seattle area, the piece is actually located in Volunteer Park on Capitol Hill, and it, it looks kind of like a huge black donut, and it's it's saying so that you can see the space needle through the middle of it. So that would be Black Sun, but. Chris Cornell has actually said that the title came from something he heard on the news. Uh, he wasn't paying attention to what was happening on the screen, and Cornell thought that he heard the news anchor say Black Hole Sun. Now, the news anchor did not say that. Um, and Cornell admits that to this day, he still, he, he never did learn what the anchor said that he misheard. But, but Cornell started thinking about the phrase, and he decided to write a song about it, and he uh, he felt it was a, a thought-provoking title. So he was driving home from Bear Creek Studio near Seattle. Sa- Soundgarden was recording a version of New Damage for a charity album. Uh, and while driving home, he, he wrote Black Hole Sun in his head. And when he when he arrived home, he, he whistled it into a dictaphone. And the next day, he brought it into the real world. Uh, he assigned a couple of key changes in the verse and to make the melodies more, more interesting. And then he wrote the lyrics and, and you know, that was similar, a, a stream of consciousness based uh, um, on the feelings he got from the, the course in the title. In my eyes, in this pose, in disguise as no one knows, as the face lies the snake in the sun, in my disgrace, boiling heat, summer stench, neat Cornell has said that if he writes lyrics that are bleak or dark, it usually makes him feel better, which makes perfect sense to me, actually. You know, people people always think that the blues, for instance, is, is a sad, you know, musical genre, but not at all. Blue, it's cathartic. Yeah, it's cathartic. I mean, blues music cheers you up. I mean, it doesn't bring you down. I mean, when you're, when you're down and out, you sing the blues, and it lifts your spirits. Um, so I, I totally get, you know, what he what he means by that um but this song it's certainly bleak i mean it references snakes a dead sky the summer stench it's it's one of those more morose songs uh, to get consistent airplay and it, it helped associate the grunge sound with depression and angst um cornell however he was simply expressing some dark thoughts in the song he wasn't suffering or crying for help in the in the manner of Kirk, it was a little Kirk bit later. A. I think it was like 93, 94, 94 when it came out. 94. 94. Yeah. And the video had the special effects where the people's faces were distorted. Yes. Yep. I remember that was a huge video. Yeah. Um, and, and well, you know, what's interesting, uh, Cornell has said that the combination of a black hole and a sun, he, he just found fascinating. Uh, he said, you know, a, a black hole is a billion times larger than a sun, it's, it's a void a giant circle of nothing, and then you have the sun, the giver of all life. Um, he said it was really that combination of bright and dark, 
black and white, if you will. I mean, light and dark, black and white. Um, but uh, it was that combination and, and a sense of hope and underlying moodiness. So, you know, he said he, he even liked the way the words looked written down uh, on the page. And um, he said he likened it to Sid Barrett-era Pink Floyd, uh, where there's, you know, a happy Talk veneer. Talk about dark. Yeah, happy veneer over something dark. And, you know, it's, it's not something he said that I can do on purpose, but he said occasionally it, it does happen for him by accident. So, so the song got a lot of radio play uh, because the alternative format and grunge sound were hugely popular, you know, at that time, 94. Grunge was really the last time that rock music, real rock music, you know, um, really found a place on the top 40 charts. What about, well, later, I guess I guess you mean as a movement because you had Jack right. later on. Uh, yeah. You have a couple bands that... Right, no, but I mean as a subgenre, as, yeah, as okay. a musical, right, you right. Know, a musical genre or, or, you know, as a movement, as you said. Um, but yeah, I mean, you had Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Temple of the Dog. Nirvana was gone. 94, of right. course, was when Cobain took his life. But, you know, um, yeah, grunge, it was a... It was huge, and, and you know. Well, and it, it allowed the other alternative artists that have been you know around since the late night, no, late eighties, also in many ways to hit the top forty charts. They right, didn't have an opportunity. Oh, yeah, to. Yeah. Well, Black Hole Sun, ironically, uh, it didn't make the Hot One Hundred because it was never released as a single, and uh, therefore it was ineligible for the chart. Um, However, it did make number 24 on Billboard's airplay chart because even though not released as a single, radio stations were playing it, you know, incessantly. Artists would, would often hold back singles. It, it was really a common ploy around this time because it encouraged fans to buy the albums, which we just got done discussing. Right, right. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, and that was a time period that nobody were, you, people weren't buying 45s. So nobody had a record player. Yeah, you know, in the '90s, unless you just had it, you know, your old record player. I mean, right. it was vinyl hadn't really made a comeback, yeah. and cassette singles and CD singles just never really, yeah, really caught on. Agreed. So it was that weird era of I'm not even sure how Billboard. I guess just through airplay and limited sales. I guess. I yeah. Don't know. Right. Well, accordingly, Super Unknown, the album, you know, the the uh, Black Hole Sun, you know, is featured on. It did. It went to number one. The album did go to number one in America. Um, I still have my. Uh, Record player. I still have a turntable. Do you? No, I, I do too. Yeah, right yeah, over there. Yeah. But yeah. I just in college. I mean, we did, we did, but we were we were weird, you know. Well, we <laughs> on the radio we, station, we of course, <laughs> we had access to vinyl because we played a lot of right. vinyl on the radio station. Yeah. But I mean, the average college student in the early '90s in their You're dorm right. room did not have a record player. Yeah, right. it was CDs and and know. so you'd either buy the CD single, but the CD single would have been two three bucks, so you might as well spend nine eight nine bucks and buy the album. I oh, mean, yeah. we just bought albums. We didn't buy singles right. anymore. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I had stopped buying singles. I'm back. You know, in the streaming world, I'm back to buying singles sometimes. But um, yeah, I. Oh, I would say after, after probably eighty six, eighty seven. I, I don't think I bought a single until. Until the you know right. the 2000s. Well, by the time I was in high school, I wanted to build my own library right. and yeah. you know that type of thing. I did as well. Yeah, um, unfortunately, Chris Cornell just passed away not not too long ago. Yes, um, in yes fact, did. we just watched Singles not too long ago too. Oh, yeah, and he has a, a more a little more than a cameo role, but he has a role in Singles as do a lot of the grunge artists of the time. So, yeah. if you haven't seen Singles from Cameron Crowe, I, uh, oh, I suggest that you great film. revisit that one too. All right. My next one it was an alternate from earlier, but I'm allowed to use it, correct, if it was just an alternate? Hey, if it was an alternate, it has not been used on our, our mixtapes. So yes. It was an alternate that we briefly discussed for our Animals episode, and that is White Rabbit. 
Ah, Jefferson Airplane. White Rabbit from Jefferson Airplane, which came out in 67. Yep. So we have, you know, White Room, White Light, White Heat, and White Rabbit all came out. And there are two other songs that came out within the same year mm-hmm. that are white that are coming up in the, in the show here. <laughs> um, in this one, we talked about briefly, but I'll just say it again. I mean, it's, it's, it's one really long crescendo. Yes. Um, like Ravel's uh, Bolero. And it is so totally about drugs. That and, and still the censors, I mean, it, it slipped right by the censors. It did, it did. It, and it's credited as being one of the, the earlier songs. I think the censors got wise after this song, but they just kind of thought it was a song inspired by Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and, yep. and Alice Through the Looking Glass, which on the surface, in a literal sense, that's all it does. It just name drops different characters in different situations from the, from the books. itself, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, is the, the two of them are in no way about drugs. I mean, it did, you know, in fact, uh, Carol, he he was very uh, prudish. I mean, he, he did not partake in anything. His history shows that he, you know, he was clean. And, and drugs, because opium dents were... Yeah, wildly popular at the time, and you, know, you can see where that interpretation. You have mushrooms. You well, have you can't. Yeah, hookah it, smoking caterpillars yes, that absolutely. change into butterflies. Oh yeah, no, I, I get where it comes from. It really feels like this is a drug episode. Yeah, with Amy Winehouse and and yeah. Velvet Underground and Jefferson Airplane. Kind of does. Um, all right, my my next song is probably the single greatest tribute to Elvis Presley ever recorded. Okay. Um, it is by a Canadian musician. Named okay. Alana Myos. Okay. Oh, yeah, and the right, song right. is Black Velvet. Black Velvet. Yes. Um, the tribute, though, this tribute, it was entirely Canadian production. Actually, the song was written by Canadian musicians David Tyson and Christopher Ward, and Myos was from Toronto. Um, Christopher Ward. Here, here's how the song went down. Christopher Ward got the idea for the song when he was a VJ, not for MTV, obviously, but for Canadian Music Channel Music. Uh, much music was what much music I used to yeah, watch much yeah they much had music much better videos <laughs> <laughs> they did yeah it was it was the Canadian equivalent of MTV and I would say in many ways better um, yeah because by that time MTV stopped playing music yeah yeah they did so uh, yeah Christopher Ward he he was sent to Memphis um, because he was uh, it was eighty seven and he was uh, supposed to cover the tenth anniversary of Elvis's death 
uh, which exposed him to many fervent Elvis fans. And he was inspired by their passion for Elvis, right? He, he took notes while he was working on the special, which was called Mecca in Memphis, if anyone wants to look that up. And he wrote lyrics based on what Elvis meant to his fans, um, you know, taking input and in, interviewing, you know, all the people there, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it's singing in dirges, if you will, and, you know, um, just there lamenting the loss of, of the king. Uh, so he, he basically, um, yeah, he, he wrote down um, what he heard from them, and um, he really learned what it must have been like uh, to grow up in the South, um, especially the Memphis area. So according to Ward, a key line in the song, the key line in the song is a new religion that will bring you to your knees. He, he says that he got the idea for that line after realizing that Elvis's effect on fans really was similar in so many ways to what churchgoers would feel after being exhorted by fundamentalist preachers. Um, so he teamed up with Tyson, and uh, the two put together a demo tape for Miles, which got her a deal with Atlantic Records, and it was produced by Tyson and Ward, and Miles' self-titled album uh, was her first, and it was a huge hit in Canada, becoming the top-selling debut album in Canadian history. But Black Velvet was the first U.S. single, and it was a massive hit. It, it peaked at number one in March 1990, and it stayed there for two weeks. The lyrics are fairly literal. I mean, Black Velvet and that little boy's smile, Black Velvet with that slow Southern style, a new religion that will bring you to your knees, Black Velvet if you please. But, you know, the lyrics also, I mean, up in Memphis, the music's like a heat wave, refers to Sun Studios. Uh, which was the epicenter of early rock music and where Elvis recorded. Mama's Baby is in the heart of every schoolgirl is a reference to uh, the baby in the first verse, which is a young Elvis Presley, uh, Gladys Presley rocking her infant to the recordings of Jimmy Rogers on the Victrola would be the first verse. Um, and then as the song continues, Love Me Tender leaves him crying in the aisle. Um, yeah, and the song follows through to Elvis's untimely death in 77. Every word of every song that he sang was for you. In a flash, he was gone. It happened so soon. What could you do? So um, it was a wildly uh, you know, popular song in, in 1990 upon its release. Miles signed her record deal when she was young and naive, and you hear this time and again, artists who basically, you know, 
make bad, you know, they, they, they sign away their, their interests and their profits, right? She was cheated by the recording label, of course, and she, she ended up paying $7 million on expenditures um, out of her own pocket for her first three albums. And all that was deducted out of her take. So Miles said that, you know, when she should have been dining out on the success of, of Black Velvet alone, and as well as her other recordings, instead she she was living in poverty and at times struggling to pay her rent. She finally received her first ever royalty check for the song in April of 2008. Uh, it was 18 years after the song was released. But as for the title, folks, uh, you can buy a Black Velvet Elvis painting at any respectable yard sale. <laughs> it's, I mean, that, oh, these gaudy works of art. I mean, they, they were, you know, they were so popular with Elvis fans. In this. Do you remember the Black Velvet Elvis? I was going to make a disparaging remark about stereotyping Elvis fans as just being gaudy in general, but that wouldn't be very nice. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I think of beehive hairdos yeah, and, and yeah. uh, doilies and little dolls on the <laughs> shelf and and Elvis Velvet uh, Elvis paintings. Hope you're not alienating any of our <laughs> listeners. No, I, I love the King. I mean, I'm, you know, Tarantino, of course, famously said, "You cannot like Elvis and the Beatles." equally and you know i think there's truth to that um one of the best lines from pulp fiction actually i'm a beatles fan uh primarily far more than elvis but you know elvis we, we've talked about him before i mean he's you know he, I, one of the most important figures uh in in rock history and i i do i, I love his early i like the 1950s elvis i like pre uh pre-army elvis because once he got back from the army, you know, he was never the same. Colonel Tom had him acting very poorly in a number of movies that were subpar. And, of course, then he, you know, I, I never, I, I hope I never again see images of, you know, 1970s Elvis because those, those, those outfits were just. This comeback concert? Yeah. Well, the comeback concert wasn't bad, but I, I'm just thinking about, you know, why does Elvis impersonator that I've ever seen choose to go with late Elvis. I mean, so few... It's easier. It's, a, it's but, an easier caricature. And the, but that's the thing. It's a caricature. I right. mean, give, if you're going to give tribute to the man, get, you know, go early Remember 50s. the Elvis stamps came out and they had the young Elvis and the old yeah, Elvis? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, old Elvis. And of course, he died on the toilet. So, you know, that that was his legacy. But um, now, early Elvis, I mean, you know, jailhouse rock and before, I mean, he was, he was the real thing. So, um, but... No, yeah, your stereotype though. It's kind of funny. And I, Sorry. Stereotypes <laughs> are stereotypes for a reason, you know. It's, I hate to they're say They're dangerous. That. They are oh, they're hugely dangerous, but all right, so that would be Black Velvet. All right. Well, this is the point in the show and good song by the way. I remember that was a huge huge hit. Kind of a one-hit wonder deal, right? It was. Yeah. yeah. Her only hit in the US. Um, this was the song that I was going to white wedding because that's how Billy Idol sings it. <laughs> white, white wedding from 1982. Yep. And uh, boy, this song was all over MTV, was it not? Oh, it was. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, here's a perfect example of an artist who I think this was his second album, and was um, Rebel Yell, right? That was the album right, that came from. That was the yep. yeah. And yep. so you know, he he was a known radio commodity, but well, in many ways, now that we just finished talking about Elvis, it was kind of like that in a way where yeah, he had the sound, but MTV allowed you know the artist to not only present their uh, what they had to sell, not only sonically, but visually as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. And he had the look, and he had the moves, and he was he was the whole package, as they say, at, at the time. And so, if you remember the video, it was kind of this nightmare gothic wedding. Yeah. And 
it's kind of it's kind of an anti-wedding song, which is interesting because people like me who don't listen to lyrics uh, play this at weddings. I didn't play this at my wedding, but I say people play it at their weddings all the time because it has the word wedding in it. Yeah, but it's yeah. kind of an anti-wedding song if you really listen to the lyrics, which I was forced to in preparation for the show. Uh, but <laughs> but the video, yeah, I mean the video just launched him kind of into stardom at the time. Actually, MTV, like with a lot of videos uh, that push the envelope, um, actually censored it originally, and then I think they kind of let it through. But uh, there was a scene where he puts the barbed wire ring on her finger. Right, I remember that. And, it, and actually, she, the actress, act, act, it was a model, I forget, asked that she actually cut her skin. She didn't want it to look authentic, so it's not fake blood. He actually cuts her really? when they're filming with this barbed wire ring. Huh. Yeah. And so MTV thought that was a little too much. They made him cut that initially, but I think they brought that back. There were other little scenes in here that they, but so there are different versions out there on YouTube you can find. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like you say, what's one of the first things you think of if you're going to do a playlist or a mixtape about white, yeah. white wedding. White wedding. You got to put white. And it's a fine, I'm, I'm not a huge, I was never a huge Billy Idol fan. I wasn't either. I, I actually enjoy him now more than I did then for the nostalgic, you know, um, just the, the wave of nostalgia that it brings. But see, see, people always, I don't know, again, this is my own hang-up, okay, but I, he's always put in kind of more of the new wave category. Which he was not. Or no. or in the, the punk thing, but he but see, he didn't really belong either with like no. the metal heads. He was kind of like on an island of, of, he had elements of all of those and he was none of them at the same time. Yeah, um, and for that I give him credit. I mean, you know, when you can when you're not easily categorized, I mean, that, that, and that's, that's not a bad thing. No, and it speaks, I think very highly of, you know, your, your, just, just your, your but, but persona. He, he dressed so, like, like he, like you expected him to be a punk rocker, which he was not, right. or, or to, to, you know, cause he was kind of gothic in that way, but his music was, was much more pop. Oh, well, dancing with myself is as pop as it gets. Right. You know, right. It's, it's really, and it, you could put it up against, Bananarama, <laughs> it, it was a dance tune. He had this kind of tough guy yeah. image, but he, but he really, yeah. I don't know, the he, music didn't reflect Eyes Without a Face, which was probably his biggest right. hit, and then yeah. Rock the Cradle, which was probably his last hit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he, he had a fine career, and, and, I, and I don't disrespect him. I was just never a big Billy Idol fan. Yeah, no, I wasn't either. But um, I'm choosing this because it's about as Gen X as you can get as far as the song goes. Yes, it is. And, um, and it, fits, it fits the criteria. song has like a lot of songs has been covered numerous times the strangest cover version do you have any idea 
I don't know that I've ever heard covered a cover this version. song. We will definitely put this on our alternates and mention songs. Herman's Hermits. <laughs> There's Herman's, Herman's Hermits covered White Wedding. Covered White Wedding. That that makes I can't even wrap my head around that. That makes no sense. In fact, there's an album. Uh, it's on Spotify called um, uh, "Songs You'd Never Expect to Hear" or something along those lines, and it has like exactly what it sounds like. Um, covered versions of of like Don Ho is doing a version of. I for, oh, I'll have to go back and look or look it up, folks, because when you go through, you can't even imagine how these songs ever came to be, much less how they would sound until you actually listen to them. Yeah, Don Ho does Shock the Monkey. That's one. Really? Don Ho covers Shock the Monkey. Is he on the ukulele doing it? You just have to listen to it. But anyway, the Herman's Hermits version of White uh, Wedding is on that album as well. So Now now you have bubbles in my head. um, All right. Uh, Are you done with the White Wedding? Yep, we're all All done. Uh, Well, my seventh uh, song pick is by the Stones, and you knew it was coming, Painted Black. Yep. yeah, and it's featured on the 1966 album Aftermath. It reached number one. On probably my favorite Stone song. Yeah, well, it's definitely up there, yeah. Mine is probably either Sympathy for the Devil or You Can't Always Get What You Want. But it's, this, I mean, Paint It Black is right there. Well, so is Satisfaction. I mean, those are the four for me. But. Well, now, you, you mentioned, and Tarantino did make the dichotomy between the Beatles and Elvis, but I always felt like that was not the best dichotomy. It should oh, it, yeah. more be along the lines of, you know, because... Because generally, your Elvis fans during the time of the Beatles were not, I I suppose, I didn't live at the time, but I would guess that your Elvis fans and Beatles fans didn't cross as much. Right. But Beatles and the Rolling Stones were the same genre. They were both British Invasion. They were both at the same time. They were both competing with one another. To me, that's a much better comparison because, yes, you can be a Stones fan and a Beatles fan, but I've never met anyone that's equal. Right. Well, and like we said during the Father's Day, uh, I think it was the Father's Day episode. My 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 dad hated the Beatles. Right, right. Still does. I mean, he he loved the Stones. Um the Stones were blues. I mean, they were a blues band and, you know, the Beatles they were experimental later, but they they started as they, they were purely just well, they were rock and roll. They were rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, there were, there was a lot of pop elements that you know, usually came from Paul, but but I mean it was yeah, I mean the Stones were gritty and they were they had a dirtier I don't mean dirty like vulgar. Well, but the Beatles, they, they had a dirty sound. The Beatles were the Beatles were, and part of that was marketing. The Beatles right, were marketed yeah. as, even though they had longer hair, they, they early on they wore the matching suits, right? And they were kind of presented as the nice boys next door. Yeah. Eventually, of course, they rebelled against that image. Where the Stones did not. The Stones were the bad boys. Yeah. The Stones were, you know, you lock your daughters up at night when they're in town, so oh, they yes. don't go to see the show. Yep. No. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, well, well, this song, um, it, it was written uh, from the viewpoint of a person who's depressed following the death of his lover. Um, he wants everything to turn to black to match his mood. And, you know, early in the song, we're, we're given the image of a hearse in the funeral procession, right? I, I see a line of cars and they're all painted black with flowers and my love, both never to come back. And, and a little bit later, we, we learned the death was unexpected. No more will my green sea go uh, turn a deeper blue. I could not foresee this thing happening to you. And and then in reference to her ascent to heaven, if I look hard enough into the setting sun, my love will laugh with me before the morning comes. So I, you know, the, there was no specific inspiration for the lyrics though. Um, when asked at the time why he wrote a song about death, Mick Jagger replied, I don't know. You know, he said, it's it's been done before. It's not an original thought by any means and it all depends on how you do it. 
So, but musically, um, you know, the Rolling Stones wrote this as a much slower conventional soul song originally. But Bill Wyman, he began fooling around on the organ uh, during a recording session. And he, he did a takeoff of uh, their original as a spoof of music played at Jewish weddings, actually. Um, and co-manager Eric Easton uh, and uh, Charlie Watts, they joined in and they improvised a double-time drum pattern, which echoed the rhythm heard in some Middle Eastern dances. And this new, more upbeat rhythm was then used in the recording as a, as a counterpoint to the morbid lyrics. Um, and, and Stone's guitarist Brian Jones, he played the sitar, uh, which was introduced to pop music by the Beatles in 65 with Norwegian Wood. to make the list um but you know it's as an aside on the single and i've always it's so weird on the single there's actually a comma before the word black have you, have you seen that i never um, noticed that yeah it's it, on the single uh, it's you know in the title it's rendered painted comma black which of course changes the context implying that you know a person named black is being implored to paint but um while some fans interpreted this as a statement of race relations the fact is, and I, because I, I was always confused by it, but you know, preparing for the show, I actually, you know, did some research. That rogue comma was actually just a result of a clerical error. Oh, okay. That's all it was. Yeah. Uh, somebody, um, someone you know, who didn't study their so, grammar yeah, yeah, in school. It, yeah, somebody, somebody who very uh, mistakenly placed a comma where it shouldn't have been, and you know, people blew it. You know, blew into a. A controversy of sorts about race relations when no just a clerical error and um but that was only on the single the album doesn't include the comma i mean it's just painted right, black right, right. On, on the yeah. album so great great tune all right well i have another one from 1967 okay and this one in some ways was was kind of the theme for the summer of love uh-huh. do you know what i'm, I'm referring to uh I always thought it was kind of a ripoff of when a man loves a woman. Okay, now I'm confused. I, 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 I was thinking two songs, but neither the, of them. The, the underchords are exactly the same as when a man loves a woman. I'm not the only one that thinks that. 
by the way, other people. It's Procoharm? Yes. Okay. Whiter shade of pale. Correct. Yeah, okay. Correct. I am, um, now when you said, when I'm thinking love song now, and I'm like, Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, musically. musically. I'm always speaking musically. Uh, yeah, I'm I know. always speaking I know. I should, musically. I I'm not know speaking that. lyrically. Yeah. No, Procoharm, I, I figured it was Procoharm coming up, and I assume you probably have Moody Blues on the list, too. It may make an may, appearance yeah. at some okay. point. Yes. All right. Yeah, Whiter Shade of Pale, uh, another part of the ra- the classic rock canon, of course. Um, I had to choose this. Great song, by the way. I love this song. Music is derived from a from a, a Bach melody, so I suppose that's where Percy Sledge um, got that as well. Um, and, and Keith Reed, uh, who who wrote the song, was at a party and and just heard somebody. I think it was a guy trying to, you know, um, be very persuasive with a young lady uh, that she had just turned a whiter shade of pale. I don't know why that would enamor <laughs> this young lady to him. <laughs> Uh, or if she had just eaten or, or taken something or what. I don't know. But somehow he overheard somebody say, uh, you've turned a whiter shade of pale, and that inspired him mm-hmm. to write the lyrics to this song. You know, I am a lyrics first guy, but this song I've never understood. I, it, it's just nonsensical to me in so many ways. To me, this is a song that is just, it's meant to be heard musically. Well, in a literal sense, it's just a, it's a girl leaves boy story. But it, it kind of like um, White Room, People have spent way too much time trying to to figure it out. At least, in, I should say, in the context of drugs, because uh, Keith Reed said that he was not doing drugs at the time that he wrote this. Hmm. Um, it sounded like maybe the subtext there was later he got into drugs a little bit heavier, but at this point he was not. He was addicted to books. Hey, if you're going to be addicted to something, he, that's a, that's he a was a huge bookworm. Uh, big fan of, of literary classics and, and, and other contemporary books of the time, um, read incessantly, uh, played around with all sorts of these ideas that, that the books, you know, presented. And so I got the impression that books were kind of his drug. And the lyrics are references to all sorts of different literary works that he was enamored with at the time. Okay. 
Yeah, I just never understood like you know the cartwheels across the floor. I mean, so so much of the song to me is just. It's hyper literate, is what it is. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's not. It's not drug related. Okay. Now, of course, a lot of people have interpreted that, and oh, right. I'm sure I've done lots of drugs to the song. <laughs> I have no doubt about but, that. But but that was not the intention. It was not. It's not about a trip or anything like that. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's also cited as being one of the earliest examples of progressive rock. Yes. It's kind of that that one of those early songs that started to experiment with uh, instrumentation, and um, basically not writing the tight little three-minute pop song, but uh, taking classical elements and exploring that in pop music or in, in rock music. It's a song I remember being played at college a lot. I mean, we had already talked about like the Steve Miller band and the, and the Eagles' greatest hits was played quite a bit. But then, you know, as, as parties got later, you'd hear Maggot Brain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'd hear Whiter Shade of Hail. You'd I hear these, these kind of just jamming, vibing type songs. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you want to talk about college uh CD collections. You, you, we mentioned before that everybody had Steve Miller, everybody had the Eagles' greatest hits. Everybody also had Zozo. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, you know, it, it was just everybody had a copy of Led Zeppelin IV, which is where my next song comes from, and that would be Black Dog by oh. Led Zeppelin. Black Dog, it's, it's the first track on Zeppelin IV, um, which became the band's best-selling album. Um, you know, there's a wide range of musical styles that show up on the set, but uh, Black Dog exemplifies the blues rock that really was the bedrock of the of the band's sound. Um, the album itself is technically untitled, very much like the White Album by the Beatles, which was literally titled eponymously The Beatles, and everyone calls it The White Album. Or like all the Peter Gabriel solo albums. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, it, the album itself was technically untitled. They didn't even title it Led Zeppelin IV. I mean, it had no title. And... Because it was, um, you know, the the fourth album, people referred to it as Led Zeppelin IV. But there were symbols on the cover that approximate the word Zozo, Z-O-S-O, instead of words. So, uh, you know, a number of fans also refer to it as Zozo, um, using the symbols, which are not actually letters, uh, as its title. The title Black Dog, this song, I, I love the story behind this because this is a song, this is an example where the title has nothing to do with the, the song itself. Nothing. Uh, the title doesn't appear in the lyrics. It has nothing to do with the song. The band is actually working um, on on the album at Headley Grange, which was a mansion in Hampshire, uh, England, uh, that is out in the country surrounded by woods. And while they were, uh, you know, doing the recording sessions for Led Zeppelin IV, there was a nameless black Labrador retriever that wandered the grounds, and it would just... It was named Sirius Black, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't, actually. <laughs> um, but no, there, there was just a, a black lab, a stray black lab that wandered through the grounds, and it, it would make its way to the band every day. And the band, I, they, they grew affection for it, they fed it, they kind of you know took care of it while they were there and played with it and when they needed a name for this track uh which didn't have an obvious title um they thought of of you know the dog and they they simply went with black dog so the song was named for the stray that i guess it works better than hey hey mama yeah probably
Zeppelin bass player, John Paul, he got the idea for the song after hearing Muddy Waters' 1968 album, Electric Mud. And he wanted to try uh, electric blues with a rolling bass part and a riff that he said would be like a linear journey. And then you have Plant's Start and Stop acapella verses, which were inspired actually by Fleetwood Mac's 1969 song, Oh Well. Um, pe- most, most people don't know early Fleetwood Mac. Um, before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham Speaking joined... Of Peter Green just passed away, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, he did. R.I.P. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he uh, before Stevie and, and Lindsey Buckingham, they, before they joined the band in 74, um, Fleetwood Mac was a, was a hardcore blues band. And Peter Green was, of course, uh, the leader, uh, the lead guitarist. But in Black Dog, you know, I'm not going to describe the song because, as you said, um, you know, it's just one that you need to, to listen to. And frankly, I don't know that there's anyone that doesn't know the song, so there's no point in A lot of people may not, because like you say, the title isn't mentioned in the song. Well, that's true. That probably know the song when they, when they hear it. Right, yeah. Um, well, well, Plant sings in the song about a woman who appeals to his prurient interests, but is clearly no good for him. He, he tells himself he'd rather have a steady rolling woman come his way, right? Um, the lyrics never approached Stairway to Heaven level of, of scrutiny, but they were still they were still subject to, to some really interesting interpretations. Jimmy Page's interest at this time in the occultist Aleister Crowley, uh, combined with the image of the hermit on, on, on the cover of the album, which, you know, it's the hermit tarot card, uh, was, was uh, the cover art, um, and the band's disappearance, because they went, uh, they set off to Headley Grange to record, it really led some listeners to conclude that the, the titular dog, the, the, the black dog, was actually some kind of hellhound. <laughs> and that line, eyes that shine burning red, dreams of you all through my head, had a number of people thinking that the song had something to do with Satan. Um, so, or gr- what was that? <laughs> What's the <laughs> Ghostbusters dog name? Oh, go- I want to say gruel. No, is it Zool? Zool. Zool. Yeah. Zool. <laughs> yeah. There is no Dana. Only Zool. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So, you know, I just found it interesting because I, you know, everyone has analyzed and scrutinized and overthought Zeppelin's lyrics. You know, Stairway itself has probably a thousand theses. You could use that for the it. animals episode. We could have. Yeah, we uh, didn't even think about that one. The sounds at the beginning of the song are Jimmy Page warming up his guitar. He, he always called it waking up the army of guitars. And, you know, the guitar, guitars are heavily layered. Um, and, you know, four separate Jimmy Page guitar tracks were actually overdubbed for the song. It, it's really uh, kind of fascinating. Black Dog was their, was their second uh, second biggest hit actually. Um, much like Pink Floyd, we've, we've talked about other bands that did not release single Steely Dan. Oh, okay. Really. Stairway was a single. No, Stairway was never released. Um, Black Dog was released, uh, and it was their second highest charting song. It reached, it peaked at number 15. Whole Lot of Love uh, from Zeppelin II uh, was their highest charting yeah, On the Amer- American charts. On the American okay, charts, yeah. yeah. It reached number four. Um, but most of Zeppelin's tracks, just they, they were never released as singles, and you know, fans of the band, as we've already commented a number of times, um, you know, the two of us included, um, fans of Zeppelin were just far more likely to buy the albums. So Yeah, that makes sense. I have that on vinyl right over there. I have it on vinyl at home as well. All right. All right, very cool. Because I'm Zeppelin, man. Yeah. 
All right, so my next one, this is a little more obscure. In fact, this may be the most obscure song that I'll bring up because it's technically just a B-side. Okay. But it's a very, very underrated B-side. In fact, it, 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 it was so underrated and began to be played live by the band that on the most recent greatest hits or, you know, whatever, retrospective compilation, it was included. Okay, so it's not just a B-side. You have no idea what it is. Yeah, I, not understand. I don't think you do. Yeah, you're trying. No. You're trying. The wheels are turning. I want my wheels were always it's, turning when you introduce. It's so. a pixie song. Okay. And it's called Into the White. I don't know that one. So, like I say, it's one of those B sides that that became more and more popular with with the audience and with the band as time went on. Uh, so it's technically on the 1997 Death of the Pixies compilation, but you know. It was around before that. Okay. And uh, it was written by, by Black Francis and, and Kim Deal, and Kim Deal takes the lead vocal on this one. And it's a great song. And what I, what I love about it is that it, there are three different interpretations of this song that all could fit. Uh, one of them, of course, it's been the theme today, drugs. Okay. When you right. listen to it, you can see how it could possibly be about someone who is high uh, on a particular substance. Um, space... Okay, and it's not out of the realm of possibility for the Pixies to actually write a song about hurling through space and seeing meteorites and all sorts of quasars and, and things. So it could possibly be a little more of a literal interpretation. You know, a lot of people think that's silly, but if you know some of the Pixies catalog and some of the bizarre things they've written about, not outside of the realm of possibility at all. And then, of course, a lot of people feel it's about death. Hmm. So death, drugs, and space. So I implore you, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of people in the audience haven't heard this song unless you're a Pixies fan. Um, listen to it with those in mind and see what you think. Let, let me know what you think. Because you really, you can make a case for all three of them. In fact, I spent some time this week uh, reading some Pixies discussion boards where people were arguing about what... And so I would, I would read this really impassioned um, you know, paragraph, super paragraph of why it's about drugs. And I was convinced... And the next person's like, no, that's, you know, there's no way. And then they would completely dismantle that argument. And then I was convinced it was about space. So <laughs> it's just one of those songs. Regardless of that, and that, and this is why maybe I like Pixies so much, because the lyrics don't really matter as much. It's about the sound. I mentioned this before 
We've talked about a lot of pioneering bands today. Um, if it weren't for the Pixies, this late '80s, you know, alternative band, uh, there, there, there would probably be grunge in some form. But they're definitely Nirvana wouldn't have sounded the way Nirvana sounded. Oh, definitely. Because, uh, because you can see a direct link between the between Pixies and and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, uh, especially with the kind of the slow fast, slow fast. In fact, after they wrote and recorded, seems like uh, it smells like Teen Spirit. I think it was Dave Grohl maybe turned to, to uh, Kurt and said, you know, I think we just really ripped off the Pixies here with that one. Uh, but it's fine because they didn't. They, I mean, they, it was an homage, I'm sure, an in- unintentional homage. But, yeah, it's, Pixies are a lot more important than a lot of people realize in, in, in rock history. So that's it. Um, I will just say one more thing. I'll throw it out there. I, I, I went to the Nelsonville Music Festival in, in um, Athens, Ohio, two summers ago it was two summers ago this year was canceled thanks to COVID right. I try to go every year and the Breeders played and, and Kim Deal from Pixies she's no longer with Pixies Pixies still around in fact I saw Pixies open up for Weezer at Blossom Music Center a couple of years ago um, but Kim Deal who is from the Dayton area uh, and of course um, Pixies are from the East Coast from Boston but uh, Kim moved back home and she and her sister formed the band The Breeders that had a big hit, Cannonball, if you remember in the, right. I remember in the early 90s. Yep. Breeders still making music. Um, Kim and her sister and the band still live in Dayton. So it's kind of weird to think that uh, you know they're in their basement writing songs and so on. Anyway, they played uh, Nelsonville, and uh, I went to the sound check. I got there early to, to, to the sound check and had an opportunity to meet her afterwards. And she, oh. she signed a set list for me, and I talked with her briefly. So that was a really, really cool moment. Very cool. Yeah. All right. That's Into the White by Pixies. All right. Well, my number nine song is uh, Black Horse and a Cherry Tree by K.T. Tunstall. Um, It it comes from Tunstall's debut album, Eyes to the Telescope, which sold four million copies worldwide. Suddenly I see... I couldn't stop listening to that song when that came out. Yeah. And they were the two, both of them. It was featured in Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. And yeah. I just could not quit listening to that yeah, song. Yeah, both, both of those singles were just, they were powerhouse uh, mainstays. I didn't on, care for on this radio. one. This, this, is, this is one of those that if it gets in my head, I have a very bad day. So I may have to, <laughs> sorry. I'm not crapping on your choice. No, here, no, I, 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 you know, to each their own. I, um, I loved both, both of the singles. Equally. It is weird that the one single I couldn't stop listening to, and this one, after about three listens, I'm like, oh my gosh. This is going to be an earworm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad song. No, just, no, no, no. I just no. couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. No, I, but yeah, the uh, the album, it sold 4 million copies worldwide. Um, it was certified five times platinum. Um, and, and this, Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, was, was the debut single. Um, it, it reached number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 and eventually made it to number one on the adult pop songs chart. Suddenly I see it was the second... Uh, second single release um, with the help of the loop pedal and the acoustic guitar and gritty vocals um, you know the, all that is layered to a driving drum beat that um, for me in many ways is reminiscent of the rockabilly sound and she really she was kind of honing in on that um, and, and she combined elements of blues soul and rock to create a blended just a blended you know composition that really I think just has a lot of character Talking. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I 
Because the place is in the middle of nowhere with a big black horse and a cherry tree. I felt a little fear upon my back. I said, Don't look back, just keep on walking. But the big black horse said, Look this way. He said, Hey, will you marry me? But I said, No. She has said that the song was inspired by old blues, Nashville, psycho hillbillies, and then hazy memories, is how she defined the song. Um, But yeah, musically, it's stripped down, uh, really, to a raw simplicity. And, you know, the lyrics have long confused listeners. Um, There have been countless interpretations, but according to Tunstall, it simply tells the story of finding yourself lost on your path and, you know, a choice has to be made. It's about gambling, fate, listening to your heart, um, having the strength to, to fight the darkness that's always willing to carry you off. But um, the song, um, it really took off in May of 2006 because uh, it was covered not once but twice by Catherine McPhee. Oh, um, American Idol. Who was the runner-up on season five of the Maybe TV that's why series, I can't Idol. listen to the song anymore. That might be why. That may, possibly. Because yeah. I, I, I was watching American Idol back in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Catherine McPhee, um, you know, she asked permission of, of Tunstall uh, to use the song. Uh, Tunstall really found herself in a quandary because she was not a fan of uh, American Idol or, or any reality music series. Um, you know, she... She said it makes great TV, but she thought they were actually very bad uh, for music, um, or, or at least not good for music. Um, but Tunstall said that she was so impressed with McPhee, uh, that, that McPhee chose Black Horse, that she, she gave the okay. And, um, you know, uh, once, once McPhee, you know, played it on, on, on air... Uh, for the contest, for the for the show, I and mean, sales of Tunstall's single, I mean, it shot up the charts. So, um, do you know yeah. who Mufi ended up getting married to? No, I. David Foster, really? Legendary producer David Foster. Yeah, they're still married, I believe. I did not know that. So American Idol was good to her. Yeah, it was. Well, yeah. She, um, so yeah, uh, you know, uh, Tunstall has said that McPhee demonstrated a, a bit of personality in what's otherwise a puppet show. I mean, she, she was not a fan of American Idol, um, and but she did say that you know McPhee's appearance did a whole did her a whole lot of favors, and yeah, Black Horse and a Cherry Tree it climbed the charts on the strength of McPhee's performance. So yeah, American Idol was one of those. I always thought as as an artist on American Idol, it had to be difficult because in many ways, maybe that artist is never going to be known without the vehicle of American Idol. Right. But then once their career is launched, then they're always stigmatized by having come from American Idol. Yes. Now, a couple have broken free from that. Kelly Clarkson. Uh, I still think of her American really? Idol. Well, Carrie Underwood. I, maybe it's because she's in Carrie's the probably the biggest, genre, yeah. but I still think of her as being D- from American Idol. Um, those two I don't think as much. And but, I can't take Daughtry seriously? Well, no, I've never taken Daughtry seriously. Uh, so, um, but yeah, it, it really... Well, at least American Idol, I mean, you've heard 
of the winning contestants, or at least some of them, and, and know their songs. Like, I think of The Voice, which I think is actually a better premise, because you're not, you know, the, the uh, judges aren't actually really looking it. at them. They're just, you haven't watched it. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen yeah. a few, but I, I didn't well, really watch it. Gail, my, my wife watches that. I'm, I'm not a fan per se, but, um, you know, watching her, watching it, I mean, it's, it is, it, I like the idea because the judges are all, they have their backs turned. So they don't, they don't actually see the person. They're judging them solely on the strength of the performance, you know, the, right, the right, sound. Right, right, right. So, um, but I don't know that any voice, any winner on the voices actually went on to have a successful recording career. So I, I don't know. Um, but American Idol, I mean, certainly American Idol has, you know, it was a huge pop cultural phenomenon. So, um, you know, like it or not, uh, Simon Cowell, you know, was was a bit of a an ass at times. Well, but that was the drama that, of the that, show. Well, That's that what was made the drama. That was, yeah, exactly. So it was it let people get their fifteen minutes of fame. You know, absolutely. All right. So you already mentioned my next song. You know, Nights in White Satin. Nights in White Satin. You knew that was coming up again. Nineteen sixty-seven. So four or five songs on my list from that 67, 68 year. Yeah, it was I don't know, a, it White was a, was a huge thing. Powerhouse year for music in general. And that's from uh, from the album Days of Future Past, which my my mom had that record. And I remember about the time I started kind of exploring music, if I wasn't in my dad's car listening to his to his cassette or A-tracks, Billy Joel or the Beatles or Wings, I was going through my mom's record collection next to the, the turntable. We had one of those uh, furniture cabinet. Oh, yeah. You we, opened it up and the turntable was in we, there. We did too. Yeah. And that's where I discovered the chipmunks sing the Beatles. <laughs> uh, I discovered Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So there's a... <laughs> There's a whole range there. Um, Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story was one I remember um, exploring. And one, oh, Iron Butterfly was one. Ah. But, uh, but, but Days of Future Past from the Booty Blues was one. And man, I didn't really necessarily care for it that much because it's very, very progressive. Oh, it's very prog, yes. Very symphonic to the point where Nights in White Satin isn't even a song title on the album. Right. It's from The Night Suite. Yes. And at about the six-minute mark, there's a poem called, uh, I think it's like late, late, late Lament or something like that. And so I remember being like this seven-year-old kid listening to the song, which I thought the melody of Nights in White Satin was very interesting. I remember kind of enjoying that. And then this, po- this spoken word poem, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> this is weird. And I took it off the turntable. But since, of course, they've, they've they cut down that song, they created a single version of it that's about four minutes long. Right. And that, that version, which, you know, it's called Nights in White Satin, um, was a hit. The, uh, the Justin Hayward wrote the song, and he actually was inspired when his girlfriend gave him as a present uh, a set of satin bedsheets. Hmm. And so he just decided to write a song about it, I suppose. And again, it's the, it, kind of a theme in this episode, too. Um, a lot of people want to say that it's, Something it's not, but really it's it's just a song about missing your love from afar, or perhaps unrequited love. There's really nothing more complex about that. Now, yes, it's it's very melodramatic. In fact, I I'm glad I put the song on, but it, it to me it's 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 overly melodramatic. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop short by saying laughable because in my mind it's laughable and melodramatic, and then when I played it this week. And I listened to it, I go, that's nah, not as bad. It's not as bad as I remembered. In my mind, I've exaggerated it. it. It's a fine song. But it does really, it's on that line of yeah. almost being a parody of itself. Mm-hmm. 
lights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you I've, I've never been a fan of the song ever, and really, I'm not a fan of the Mooney Blues. I just, I, I, it's a band I've never cared for. Even their '80s pop hit "In Your Wildest Dreams." Um, that was a good song. That, that, yeah, I'll, I'll give them props for that. I mean, it, it was, it was a good song uh, for, but they were in the right time and the right place for right, that one. Right. I just, you know, the early Moody Blues. It's just, and I, I like Prague, some Prague. I mean, progressive rock was not my thing, but there are certain, certain bands that that I absolutely love you know from that movement uh, moody blues is not one of them I, I just i don't know i find it so just as you said it, it's just so melodramatic and it, it all of their work you know in the 60s and early 70s it, it just i don't know I, I just never did it for me but I, it was a song but like you it would have made my list you had, to, you had to be on the list yeah if, if, if i if i had white it would have made the list simply because you know, cultural impact and expectations, and and the late sixties obsession with white, yeah, which is really it's strange. A, it's a classic. So, so yeah. Uh, so, if you haven't heard it in a while, listen to it again. And if you haven't heard it at all, let me let us know what you think. Yeah, is it is it melodramatic? Am I being <laughs> too harsh on it? Because I think I was being a little too harsh on it in my memory. I don't know if you are. <laughs> all right. Well, my final pick is by Johnny Cash. And it is The Man in Black. Great song. I was hoping yeah. you'd include that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's a protest song written and recorded by Cash. It was originally released on the 1971 album of the same name. Um, Cash himself, he, he was known as The Man in Black uh, for his distinctive style of onstage costuming. And the lyrics are an after-the-fact explanation of this, uh, with the entire song as a protest statement against the treatment of poor people by wealthy politicians and mass incarceration and the war in Vietnam. Um, he was. People don't, I mean, people realize that, but people don't think of him as an activist when, right. when you say Johnny Cash, but he was quite an activist. Oh, he was. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in the intro to his first performance of the song, Cash revealed that he had talked to some of the audience members from Vanderbilt University that weekend, and he was inspired to write Man in Black. So uh, he revised it a few times just before the concert on Wednesday, and he performed the song using cards with the just revised lyrics and at the end of the song he received a standing ovation i mean it 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 really you know he kind of wrote it and performed it on the spot um according to the lyrics uh i wear the black for the poor and the beaten down living in the hopeless hungry side of town i i wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime but is there because he's a victim of the times and you know the, the song continues and goes on from there um, but the truth is, at first, Cash and his band really wore black shirts because it was the only matching color they had in their wardrobes. Um, and, you know, Cash, he, he did originally wear other colors on stage early in his career, but he claimed he liked wearing black both on and off stage best. And Cash's drummer, uh, 
W.S. Fluke Holland was, was the name of his drummer. He has actually said that people um, often asked him, you know, why did Johnny wear black? And according to him, he says it's, it's real simple. Because back then, when they would leave on tour, the longer you could wear the clothes that you had on, the easier it was and the, the you know the, the cheaper it was no you know not having clothes laundered and he said so if you wore black it wouldn't show dirt as quickly as anything else and then there's also Cash's eldest daughter Roseanne she said in 2008 that there was a deeper complexity to the song she said that um, she, she explained that there are so many levels to it one is saying you know I'm wearing this symbol for the downtrodden and the poor the other, she said, was much more subtle, to her at least. It reflected the sadness, the convulsions, just that mythic dark night of the soul that you know, Johnny Cash had went through so many times. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone well there's a reason for the things that i have on i wear the black for the poor and the beaten down living in the hopeless hungry side of town i wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime but is there because he's a victim of the time i wear the black for those who've never read or listened to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity why you think he's talking straight to you and me well we're doing mighty fine I do suppose in our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes but just so Reminded of the ones who are held back Up front there ought to be a man in black Man in black, my, my final pick Yeah, I, I, because I'm colorblind I wear a lot of just black pants, white shirt And then a colored tie Right But sometimes I'll just wear black pants and a black shirt And a black tie And then people make Johnny Cash comments about me <laughs> But I just like it because I don't have to worry about mismatching. Well, black is slimming. You know, I, I I prefer black just because it, you know, makes me look like I'm at least a few pounds, you know, less. So, um, but no, I think black, I don't know, I like you. I, I Black, I think, is just, there's something sophisticated, something very classy about I mean, the black tuxedo, you know, and every every woman has her little black dress, you know. Because it's slang, but also because it's sexy and elegant and sophisticated. So, yeah, there's there's just something about. I would I would wear black before I would wear white. White is just to me. I, I don't. You're wearing white right now. Well, I don't mean a t-shirt. Of course, <laughs> it's a Return of the Jedi t-shirt with a white background. Yes, but I, I I just no. I and I do wear the white dress shirt, but of of course, but no, just the idea of wearing white pants and you know a white jacket and I. To me, that screams disco, if sure, nothing else. Sure. So, and not, not in my, not, so, not in my wardrobe. So, "Back in Black" by AC/DC does not make your list. It did not. It didn't even make my alternate, sir. Wow. My alternates were "Blackbird" by the Beatles. I, I, that's my second. I can't believe "Blackbird" yeah. didn't make. "Blackbird" was. Uh, Are you gonna save that for the bird episode? Yeah, that, okay. that's kind of why I did it. Uh, "Blackbird" was alternate one, and "Black" by Pearl Jam was yeah. alternate two. So. I was gonna save. Um, 
old white Lincoln for the car episode if we ever do a car episode. Oh, but I'm sure I, we will. But I used it up. I figure we can find other ones. Well, we also said that we can return to songs in season two. True. We're, we're, just, we're not going to repeat the same song in any episode in one season. Right. So, um, you know, in our seasons, it's not going to go on forever. Well, so. so much for a quick episode. We thought this one was going to be a nice, tight, quick yeah, episode. Well, we, we talked We're already a, at yeah. uh, well, we quite had, past two hours. We talked but. quite a Actually, I think we had some really interesting conversations. Oh, yeah, sure. Though. And I still have one more. Yeah. And this one doesn't fit anywhere on our playlist at all. This is one, again, that I went back and forth between including White Horse from Taylor Swift, which we already talked about, and this song. But I finally decided in the shower this morning to, to make the switch and include it. Um, it, is, it is a song that a lot of people might expect. Here's another song people might have expected that I didn't choose was Pretty Fly for a White Guy. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. I just couldn't do it. Aww. I couldn't even do it. I couldn't. I love the offspring. I don't. I don't. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fair. I just hey, don't. Could have played, you could have went Weird Al, you know, pretty fly for a rabbi. So. Well, I did go Weird Al. White and nerdy. You went white and, <laughs> oh, I love you. Yes, that is classic. White and nerdy. Okay. Believe it or not, this was his highest charting song ever. Really? In over 40 years of making parodies, he only had three songs that hit the top 40. That's it? Yeah. Well, I should say three that hit the top 10, I think, is well, what it is. Eat It. Um, let me see. Eat It. See, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm guessing it's probably, I don't I, know for I would, sure. I would think Eat It, definitely Amish Paradise. And then, and then White and Nerdy. This one? White Nerdy went to like number four. Yeah. Wow, that is hard to believe. He had so, he has, in fact, that would be a fun episode too. Just no, only th- here it is. Only three charted. This is the only one that ever made the top 10. Really? Yes. That is crazy. Of all the great Weird Al parodies over the years. You know, years. we should do an episode on Weird Al parodies sometime. Yeah, we should. That would be, that would be awesome. That would actually be so much fun. This is a perfect parody of Riding, Riding Dirty yeah. by Chameleon Air and Crazy Bone. And uh, it celebrates and satirizes nerd culture. And the, the Ryden actually won the Grammy for best rap performance that year. And Weird Al actually met him at the Grammys. And he was kind of, I think, a little bit intimidated to think what Chameleon Air would think of his song. Right. Chameleon Air loved it. He loved it. And he said uh, he was shocked that Weird Al could rap so well. <laughs> I'm a champion of D&D MC Escher, that's my favorite MC Keep your 40 out, just have an Earl Grey tea My rims never spin To the contrary You'll find that they're quite stationary All of my action figures are cherry Stephen Hawking's in my library My MySpace page is all totally pimped out Got people begging for my top 8 spaces Yo, I know pie to a thousand places Ain't got no grills, but I still wear braces I order all of my sandwiches with mayonnaise I'm a whiz, a minesweeper, I can play for days Once you see my sweet moves, you're gonna stay amazed My fingers moving so fast, I set the place ablaze There's no killer rap, I haven't run At Pascal, well I'm number one Do vector calculus just for fun I ain't got a gap, but I got a soldering gun. What? Happy Days is my favorite theme song. I can sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong. I'll ace any trivia quiz you bring on. I'm fluent in JavaScript as well as Klingon. And I will say this. 
You know, you look at, even back in the days of, of Eat It, and I remember the first time I heard that on the radio, and my friend and I, we laughed just for hours oh, I and hours. I, the first time I heard it, I, I just, I was, oh, I, I remember literally on the floor laughing, yes. But the thing about Weird Al is, obviously, he's a genius when it comes to making these parodies and, yes. and translating these songs into something that not only is funny, but is somehow culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Yeah. Right, it takes a certain talent just to be able to create a parody, but to create a parody that's somewhat in the zeitgeist of what's going on at the time. I mean, you can go back to Weird Al's catalog and you can see how these songs fit what's oh, going on at the time. Time and again. But then on top of that, he can sing mm-hmm. and he can rap. And he plays a mean accordion. <laughs> he plays accordion. <laughs> so, But in the team of musicians that he plays with, I mean, he's just, he's the real deal. He, he is one of the true Gen X geniuses that people... Yes. Pass up because he's a comedian. Well, you know, and, and I've said time and again, I would love to have a an episode where we discuss rock hall snubs. Yeah, because I'm, I, I am. Oh, there's so many artists that I just feel should be in there, and there's quite a few artists that I think probably should not be in there that that have made it. But Weird Al, people laugh at me when I say this. He should be in the rock hall and should have been in there some time ago. You can make a case for that. And he is. Yeah, I. And you know, it's. It's interesting too because artists either love him, musical artists either love him, yeah, yeah, or, right, or right. They hate. I mean, there there are a number of artists that have through the years refused to grant permission for him to, and to parody their songs. Technically, under fair use, he does not have that permission. I know, but out of respect for his fellow musicians, he will only cover a song if he gets permission from the artist. Yeah, uh, great story. He called Kurt Cobain and said, "Can I do a, a, a cover of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit?" And Kurt said. Um, is it going to be about food? Because so many of Weird Al's parodies are about <laughs> they food. They really are. And Weird Al's like, no, no, it's not going to be about food. He goes like, okay, cool. Yeah. And, and Prince famously would not allow him. Twice, yeah. Because and he, so he loves to make fun of Prince. Yeah, because he, he wanted to parody both Purple Rain and, and Kiss. And yeah, Prince were flat out refused. Actually, Paul McCartney, I, I don't know if you know this, um, he asked McCartney if he could parody Live and Let Die. The song was going to be called Chicken Popeye. Yeah, right. And McCartney actually said to him, I would I would kill for you to parody one of my songs. He said, but I'm a vegan. Right. And I, ref- I, I, I just feel really uncomfortable with any and song. And that makes sense. You can and, yeah, that. and he said, can you, you know, parody the song in any other way? And Weird Al said, no, that's, that's yeah. all I got. So out of respect for McCartney. Oh, there, there are all it. sorts of great, I'm sure, great merities that we'll never hear because yeah. he couldn't get permission. But I, I kind of like that about him. Like, he'll still respect the artist and not actually make the song even though he can, but then he'll still make fun of him <laughs> like Prince. <laughs> yep. Now, that's a show. He'll he'll tour occasionally. Uh, he, I know he's come to Blossom from night of time. I've seen him, yeah. I, Have you? I saw him at the Nautica stage. I can um, imagine that's probably a it good was, show. It oh, was, it was right after Alapalooza. Uh, I think that was the album. Um, it was right after like uh, Bedrock Anthem and you know uh, Jurassic Park, uh, his parody of Jurassic Park. Um, but yeah, he does costume changes. I mean, the real deal. I mean, when he did Fat, I mean, he literally came, came out on stage fat suit. and he had fat suit and came out dressed as Yoda for you. I mean, yeah, it's it, he. It was one of the most entertaining concerts I've ever been to. Yoda, that's a great. Yeah. And he had some originals that are great too. Like, uh, oh yeah, what's the one fifties? Doo-wop oh, ballad. He has a couple, but one, one, more, minute, one more minute. One more minute is, is incredible. It is. Just, yeah, we should yeah. do a show on that. Oh, I love one more minute. Yeah, he has a few, and he has a great uh, horror uh, theme song, "Nature Trail to Hell." Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard that one. Yeah. Now, Weird Al show would be a Weird Al episode would be fantastic. Well, you know how he always has a um, 
polka on 45 yes where he takes popular songs and he puts them to polka for it he does the entire hamilton score i know have yeah, you heard that i've heard it incredible yeah and yeah well, he's, he really is he's a genius so and i already mentioned the one alternate was was white horse from taylor swift we talked about that the, the last one that i didn't include this is the one that i was tempted to include instead of dido i went with dido of course um it's a band by the name of real estate have you heard of real estate no i haven't they are Again, indie, anything that's newer that I know is going to be indie, most likely. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of an indie. Dream pop is kind of a, a genre apparently I like because I'll discover these bands like Beach House and Future Islands, and then I find out that they're considered dream pop. So yeah. whatever that is, that's I like that. Okay. Well, I, I do like Beach House. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know some of the genre, but right. I, I'm not familiar with um, it. It's just really um, melodic guitar, very laid back, um, very... Just, you know, lyrics aren't necessarily profound, but they're interesting. Right. Okay. And I had an opportunity to see them actually at Beachland Ballroom too. Um, actually, Colin Malloy of the Decemberists retweeted one of their songs, which is what caused me to get into them. So hmm. retweeting helps, folks. But they're they're actually a band <laughs> from New Jersey. Um, but it's 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 dream pop and it's kind of jangle pop too. It's kind of got that jangle guitar okay. type sound to it. And. That's all I'm going to say about it. I mean, if if you if that sounds like something, I will put this, of course, on the alternates um, playlist. But they have about three or four albums, just really, really good stuff. Just a big fan, and I wanted to promote them here. Yeah. So I didn't put them on the main list, but put them no, on the alternates that's great. list. Okay. Well, I think that those are our 20 songs. They are. And this time, I actually made a running list, so I, I, I was, make sure we had was watching you the, write them down. The, the yes. correct number there. So we are going to decide on a sequence. So we're going to decide whether we is one side white and one black, or are we going to go every other? How are we going to do this? I, I don't know. So we'll be right back, and we will let you know. And we're back just like that, and we have our sequence. And Alan, why don't you tell them how we made our choice? Absolutely. Well, we debated going back and forth, alternating between black and white, but we really felt, uh, you know, keeping in that that idea of duality, the yin and the yang, we, we decided to do a full side of black tunes, and then you flip the, the mixtape, and it would be a set of white songs. So we, we separated the colors by side, and uh, our orders actually were not that different than how we presented them to you. Um, in fact, uh, my order is exactly the way that I presented it. Uh, side A would begin with Back to Black by Amy Winehouse, Into Black Betty by Ram Jam, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by The Hollies, Black Friday by Steely Dan, Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden, Black Velvet by Alana Miles, Painted Black by The Rolling Stones, Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, Into Black Horse and the Cherry Tree by K.T. Tunstall, and we end Side A with Man in Black by Johnny Cash. Then, on Side B, we begin with White Room by Cream, Into White Light, White Heat by The Velvet Underground, Old White Lincoln by The Gaslight Anthem, Into White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, A Whiter Shade of Pale by Proko Harum, Nights in White Satin by The Moody Blues, Into White Flag by Dido, then Into the White by The Pixies, followed by White Wedding by Billy Idol, and we end our mixtape with White and Nerdy by Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, this was a fun one. It really was. Um, just felt odd to, you know, no matches. No matches, no, no, no matches. Although I assume we will have some next week. Next, next week, week yes. um, we are going to do our first... Uh, of three now they won't be consecutive we're not going to do them in a row but it'll be our first of three uh, episodes of 
television themes because uh, COVID, I'm sure, uh, we, we know, you know, television, uh, the, new, the new season is being pushed back because of production and, and whatnot. But traditionally, this is that time of year when the, the new season, you know, new series, returning favorites would start to, to start to show up on, on our, you know, on our radar. And we'd be all excited to, to begin the new, new season of, of television. So in keeping with the calendar, not necessarily, uh, you know, how things are, are panning out this year, we are going to do three, again, not consecutively, but three different episodes on television themes. And, uh, the first one next week are TV themes with lyrics, uh, very specifically, uh, lyrical TV themes uh, in prime time. Okay, so it's, it's going to be, you know, our favorite. Are favorite we considering themes. prime time anything past seven o'clock? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, soap operas, game shows, you know, uh, you know, even Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> that is not, you know, those will not have a presence. Um, uh, but yeah, it'll be anything that that would be on the air at night um, with lyrics, and we're going to title uh, the episode. Well, don't misconstrue. I we're, we don't know what we'll title. We've already it. kind of talked yeah, about we, it. Yeah, so. we don't know what we'll title the mix tape itself yet. But but uh, the episode we're going to say it's part one of uh, Remote Control. So that, what, what are we going to call this mixtape? We didn't talk about that. No, we didn't. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Um, just black or white, because that's that's a song, the Michael Jackson song that we. Well, it's didn't also use. it's also a Three Dog Night song. That's black, true. Black and white. Yeah. Um, which is probably they're both about race relations, though, which is not what our uh, mixtape. Because then about. our title would be a black and white mixtape, <laughs> black and white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure how else you get around it. This is going to be a tough one. That, yeah. Um, Shades of gray. <laughs> there we go. Why don't we call? Yeah, shades of gray or touch of gray or. Uh, you know, either one. Okay. Which it, one? It you want seems to go, ironic. Want to okay. go with the dead, or do you want to go with uh, Shades of Grey's Billy Joel? Let's do the dead. Let's okay. go Touch of Grey. Touch of Grey. Is that I, that doesn't make sense? But I like it. Well, of course, it makes sense. It's black well, and white. But there's no gray. There is. We just we had a whole intro talking about how well, <laughs> the contrast between. No, it's good. All right. Well, but you know, you you yourself said that you are no Ansel Adams, so every every black and white photograph. You're right. Was We're imperfect. Grayscale. Yes. So yes. All, all right. right. All right. Well, uh, it is time for our soundtrack uh, segment of the the episode, and I again don't know whose turn it is to go first. Doesn't really matter. I'll go first. All right. Okay, so Alan, you are finally getting around to something you've always wanted to do, which I don't know, I'm just making this up for sake of the question, and that is backpack across Europe. Huh, I would like to do So that. you get off the train, you have your gear, you walk on you know, the back road of some village, what song plays first? Oh, boy. Um, song about backpacking across Europe. I think maybe Zeppelin's just on the brain. Um, but I would go ramble on. I oh, like that's Zeppelin. good. Yeah. And, you know, being a token fan, it's not a, never a bad thing to include, you know. Uh, you that know, works. Ram, gall, ramble gall, on. Gollum on the trip. So Through I, the countryside, yeah, yes. ramble on. That, that's, yeah, I, I like it. All right, your turn. All right, my turn. Holy crap. <laughs> You've just discovered a rocket pack in a trap door of the old barn behind your grandparents' house. 
Five minutes of fuel. What song do you play while rocketing across the sky? I know it's totally obvious, but I'm going with Ellen John's Rocket Man. Man. You I have knew, to. <laughs> I knew that's where you were going, Rocket Man. Either that or Mr. Blue Sky. Or, or the Pixies Into the White would be perfect for that, actually. Yeah. We really need to do a space episode sometime. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good. Okay. Well, that, lots lots of neither choices. Here nor there. We, we have, folks, we have so many ideas. I mean, we, we actually have a list of over 400 themes. <laughs> so we're going to be in this for the long run. Well, and we're about halfway over, I'd say halfway through season one. Yes. We're going to wrap up season one here in about, what, five or six more episodes maybe? Yeah, and, it sounds about right. And then we'll be back for the holidays. I mean, we'll have a special for possibly Thanksgiving, definitely Christmas, and uh Probably Valentine's Day as well, but um, yeah, we'll we'll be calling it quits probably right around the start of November, and then we will be back again in May for season two. Um, but yeah, space. Sometime, That's a good one. Yeah, eventually. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we want to again thank our sponsors. We now have two of them actually. Uh, of course, Jay Callahan Painting. Um, please, you can find them on Facebook. Definitely uh, get in touch if you have uh, a need for painting services, Jay Callahan Painting on Facebook, and they do serve the greater Cleveland area. And new this week, our newest sponsor is Affordable Entertainment. Now they um, they do have a website that you can go to. They, they uh, it's, it's a DJ service. They, they also have photo booth rentals available. But very specifically, I want to call attention to their live trivia, Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia. Every Tuesday night on Facebook, you can find this. They hold uh, a trivia game online and um, definitely uh, worth your time. Um, every week, the, the winner uh, receives a $50 uh, prize, and it's free to play. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely... Uh, you know, a, a wonderful way. They, they, uh, Affordable Entertainment began this uh, right as lockdown occurred in March, and it's going strong still. So, you know, what have you got to lose? $50 prize, and, you know, people can play against each other in their own household, and you don't have to play on a team if you don't want. Of course, um, they're also looking for uh, locations to do live remotes. So if you own a business, uh, you know, in, in the greater Cleveland area, Stark County, and then the surrounding uh, area, um, you know, you can certainly uh, give them a ring. The uh, Affordable Entertainment would be more than happy to come out to your uh, location and, and do a live remote of the trivia game. Um, so categories change every week, and, and private events are available if you want to host your own uh, trivia event. But Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia, please look them up on Facebook and we, we are very grateful for both of our sponsors. So, with that, I guess another week has come to an end. Yep, hot punk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next Sunday. That's right, but for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But, we will see you on the flip side. 